This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. And we are back with another action-packed, fun-filled episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Support the show. That's Art of Dark Pod. If you enjoy what we do, we would certainly appreciate your support. You get an extra mini episode after every episode that we do if you support the show that way. And it occurred to me... Well, first, I'm Kevin Kautzman, and I'm joined by Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing real well, man. I'm uh, fresh out of the woods. I was uh, where the the trees have ears and the fields have eyes, and uh, I was consulting with, um, well, I'm not going to say who I was consulting with yet, but uh, in prep for this episode. There you go. (laughs) You were talking to the the owls out in the woods. Yeah. (laughs) And and it occurred to me that we're doing something of an, an ad hoc survey of art history as we go Mm -hmm. uh, as Mm -hmm. we do this podcast as we accidentally do this podcast yes (laughs) uh and i i'm just gonna say it's pretty important work i hey man i tell you what i am learning a ton i mean Mm -hmm. i I know Mm -hmm. your educational background i've got a i've got a degree in english a master's degree in writing and I feel like I've learned more about literary and artistic history doing this podcast for a year and a half than I in, I, in all of that. So got my junior high graduation certificate right over here. <laughs> That's right. And That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're doing important work, which yeah. I like to think makes the podcast important. But we we know, of course, as podcasters, mm-hmm. that no podcast is important. Well, not really. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, and yet, and yet, here we are. Here we are, and we persevere, and we appreciate your support. We love hearing from people. The show has uh, gained a little bit of traction where periodically somebody will reach out. They'll give us a, a little note. We'll get a new Patreon subscriber. Yeah. We'll hear from somebody on Twitter. We love that. And of course, Brad, you run the Twitter account, which is at Art of Dark Pod. And you've been doing a fabulous job with that. Oh, you thanks, man. you yeah. post, you don't just post. Ah, uh, hey, here we're we're doing this episode on Sarah Kane. You mm. you dig a little deeper, and you I think it's a good that account is a good follow, whether you follow the show or not. I, I like to think so. Yeah, uh, up leading up to this uh, in the last week, I kind of haven't because I literally, as I said in the lead up, I literally was out in the middle of the woods trying to not be on my phone, so I didn't do it this week. But up leading up to this for the last three four weeks, I was doing sort of mini po mini Art of Dark episodes, one post, one tweet episodes on renaissance early modern artists so you'd get a a post on the bio the relevant bio of an artist some of their images and then some follow-up tweets something interesting about their lives um and i think for somebody who didn't know anything about any of that stuff 
just to click on those few minutes, read every day, I think it would have been pretty interesting. So, and, and maybe even if you knew about it, find something new. So I try to do that, make it relevant to the show, what we're doing, um, and, 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 you know, make it kind of an adder to, uh, to, to, to the listening experience. Yeah. Uh, yes, the Art of Darkness <laughs> experience. And of course, we are well into our second season doing this show. And yeah. I think it's worth uh, pointing out that we're returning to our roots here. It's just mm. you. It's just me. Yeah. I've got a, I, I lit a candle. Yeah, yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm in the mood and I'm yeah. ready. I'm ready to go back to our roots. I and like this, it. I like it. Mm, yeah. this, we did five episodes last month and they all had guests. They were all wonderful. They were all we amazing. Love it was a having, banner month, but yes. Yes, we love having guests. It's wonderful. Uh, but the, the core premise of the show or the, the premise of the show is that Brad and I get together and we do an episode where one of us educates ourselves, our ignorant self, mm -hmm. uh, in order to walk the other through the life of an artist. And we call those episodes, those are core episodes. Mm -hmm. And again, accidentally, we discovered that we needed another category of episodes for guests who wanted to come on or who want to come on yes. to talk about the core episodes. And those episodes are called darkroom episodes. And every episode gets a mini episode called After Dark, yes. which is for the Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We've also thrown in just kind of, I think, like a little bit of an indulgence for ourselves. Mm -hmm. These movie watch-along yes. episodes. Yes. And we did <laughs> we did 2001 A Space Odyssey. And mm -hmm. we are preparing to do my favorite film. There's Blood in the Water, Jaws. With oh, the great... I thought you were going to say Piranha 3D. <laughs> with with Blower guys, friend of the show Blower guys, yeah. who did our who did the Disney episode yeah, with us, correct? So we've got we've got lots of good stuff, but this is this is uh, uh, the the Beatles going yeah. back to the going back to the studio, going That's back right. to their roots, right? That's this right. Is, we are, uh, you know, we we've put down the electric guitars. We're we're sitting around the campfire, and who who are we talking about today on this core episode, Brad? Uh, we are talking about. Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus. Hieronymus. Say it with Hieronymus. 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 Latin for uh, Jerome. The, the Latinized version in Hieronymus Bosch's head of Jerome. Um, huh. so, so yeah, for those folks who followed us and come to our show for um, episodes on uh, modern and near contemporary literary figures, we decided we'd give you exactly what you came for and we'd go back nearly 600 years to a Northern Renaissance painter about which almost nothing is known. <laughs> we have to begin with the question, of course, yes. Brad, which you need to ask. Yeah, me, and that's, what I was, that's where I was going next, Kevin. What do you know about Hieronymus Bosch? I know that I have the Garden of Earthly Delights, which... I'm looking at it right now. It's a triptych. I have it mm -hmm. over here. You sent it to me. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a cliche. It is a the kind bit. of thing that a an undergrad who fancies themselves a certain way uh, might might buy and put on the wall. I did kind that. Of a... and I'm, I have that on my <laughs> wall over here. Yeah. Well, I think you're... <laughs> You've no, been to fair. grad school, Brad. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yes. yeah, fine. Uh, I do also know a little, there's a little sliver of the garden from the middle lower left of the triptych that 
Dead Can Dance uses on one of their album covers. Oh, the central panel? Mm-hmm. Well, they use a portion of it, the little right. bubble. Uh, oh, okay. Yep, I, yep. I know that from Dead Can Dance, who are mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, musical groups and have been for a long time. Okay. Uh, and that is it. Okay. <laughs> That's all I know. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yep. Okay. So um, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing before we dive into it. Um, because this is an audio only podcast and we're talking about a painter. I was thinking, you know, how are we going to do this? And I decided we'd focus primarily on the, this one image, which is kind of considered as masterpiece. If a person's only familiar with one Bosch painting, it's garden of earthly delights. Kevin in a handful of sentences, how would you describe the garden of earthly delights? It's a triptych. Looking yep. <laughs> from the left to the right, we we seem to move from the Garden of Eden into a kind of chaotic uh, scene that I would think might be limbo or earth or an allegory for the pleasures of life. And then to the right, we seem to be moving into hell or yes. the tortures of the damned. Yeah. 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 I yeah. think that, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, uh, one thing I would note too, well, we'll, we'll get into it. So let's just jump into it. So the guy who created this, we call him now Hieronymus Bosch. His name was birth name was not Hieronymus Bosch. It was, well, every time it appeared in a legal document, it was spelled a little differently. So we're going to say it was either Jerome or Jeremiah von Aiken. Um, uh, and we don't know a whole lot more about him than that, but I'm going to give you everything we know for a fact. And then, and then uh, I have an idea about how we can maybe try to uh, maybe triangulate or quadrangulate who he might actually be from various interpretations. Plus, I'm going to give you the history of this painting after his death, which I, is actually pretty fascinating. So um, we don't know a whole lot about him, He's born uh, Jerome or Jeremiah von Aiken around 1450 in the town of Sertikenbosch in the Netherlands. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because it's got an S, an apostrophe, a dash. I, I could be saying it wrong. Kevin, maybe you know better than I do that. I'm not going to attempt that. Okay. I, it sounds to me like you did a fabulous job. And if there are any uh, Dutch listeners who'd like to give us a hard time. Uh, I, I practiced. I practiced that one. Very, very so, nice. Well um, done. Yeah, the place is typically called by, even by the locals, is called Den Bosch, okay? And our Bosch took his name from the city, which I, I, I kind of like it. He took his name, he, 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 he um, Greekified it into, into Hieronymus, and then he put the name of this town from it. It's almost like a rapper thing. Like, I'm Cornelius yeah. Detroit. It's like very... Yeah, right, yeah. It's like a rapper <laughs> thing or like, in a, like a spicy Twitter anon. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, okay. so I, I kind of I dig that. Now, we don't know a whole heck of a lot about him biographically. He, ex- he exists in only 53 documents, archival documents that have been found. In only 12 of these, is it something where he's acting on his behalf? So there's, there's various loans and legal proceedings that aren't particularly interesting that mention him in some capacity or another. But almost none of these have anything to do with his art. And when they do, they're very, very minor things. It's, we don't have the document for, we don't actually know for a fact who even commissioned 
this altarpiece that is the Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, the, the documents we do have related to his art are very small. Like he designed, uh, he helped design some stained glass for a chapel. He painted some antlers for, a, for the same chapel, chapel. And that's kind of it legally um, from an art standpoint. Um, but we do know a little bit about his family tree. So he, um, he comes from an artistic family. His great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and all three of his brothers were working artists, though as far as we know, none of their work has survived to the present day. So nobody knows what any of this looks like. We don't know if there's a family Bosch style. It's very possible. We have no idea. You um, got Bosch, kid. <laughs> well, it's funny. We'll get to it. In the 1600s in Spain, to call an artist a Bosch was an insult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, um, so his grandfather, uh, Jan van Aken, uh, came to Sertigen Bosch or Den Bosch uh, which is in the north of North Brabant, what is now the Netherlands, um, sort of in the middle picture in your mind's eye, in the middle of a triangle between Brussels, Amsterdam, and Dusseldorf. I um, went to public schools, Brad. I can't. I'll yeah, have you to, don't know. I'll that. have to look okay. it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amsterdam's where weed's legal. Brussels <laughs> okay, right. is where Van Claude, uh, John Claude Van Damme came from. Right. And then I don't know what Dusseldorf. There's probably someone from <laughs> Dusseldorf. <laughs> he is sometimes, uh, Bosch is sometimes referred to as a Flemish painter, though territorially that's not quite accurate, but I, I suppose that's good enough. It's sort of, it's almost uh, what used to be called Flanders. Um, he probably apprenticed for a time in his father's shop, though we don't actually know that. Uh, uh, we'll get to some extraordinary claims and evidence a little bit later. Um, but I'm trying to just lay out what we actually know for a fact, and I'm almost done because we don't know a whole heck of a lot. So <laughs> we know one thing that in eight, in uh, sorry, 1463, the town of Dembos probably, well, no, it did. It burned almost entirely to the ground. So he would have been a child of eight to 13 years old and his hometown burned to the ground. I think we have a tendency to forget how frequently that would happen. Somebody right. would tip over a lantern or a candle. Yeah. And, yeah. And the whole city. I mean, London it's, in 1666, yeah. half the town or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, most art historians agree that if you look in the right-hand panel, what's called the hell panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights, and you see the structure fires in the background, that that was likely the, the burning of Den Bosch was likely the inspiration for that. There is some claims that no, this is the earliest, most accurate portrayal of structure fire in a painting. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it does look pretty realistic, I would say. Hell yeah. panel is a great name for a metal band. It is a great name for a metal band. <laughs> it really is. This whole, everything about this, like if you name any one thing in this image and give it a name, you could call your, your metal band that pretty much. <laughs> right. <laughs> Repeatedly yeah, 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 right, right, yeah, cool. All right, man. Um, um, uh, so we do know that he went to a uh, school run by the religious community called the Brethren of the Common Life. This was a religious school emphasized meditation, the inner life, severity against sin. Um, another famous alumni of that school was Erasmus, who 
for people who oh. don't know, wrote uh, In Praise of Folly, was a great humanist thinker, um, sort of not part of the Reformation. Pre-Reformation. Right, but yeah. somebody who inspired, in, in some ways inspired the Reformation, we could say. Um, but, a, but a heavy hitter, a philosophical heavy hitter for, for the, you know, the 1500s. Um, uh, he went, so he went to the school, but he was 10 to 20 years younger than Bosch. Um, this is a very religious town, and this is really important to understand. St. John's Cathedral, which is a beautiful cathedral, I was looking at pictures of this um, in reference to this, is sort of centered there. One in 16 people in the town worked for the church in some capacity or another. And for a fairly small city, something like there were something like 60 religious fraternities and groups that people were parts of. So it was the church is in the center of town. You know, it, it's, a, it's an extremely, extremely religious place. Um, and I think it, it, you can't disentangle that from Bosch's life, whatever, you dis, whatever we come to decide his religious tendencies were. Um, he married a wealthy, into a wealthy landowning family. Um, and he didn't have any children. And it used to be suspected or thought that the reason that he didn't have any children was that he married a much older woman like he was 20 and he married a woman who was 50, that kind of thing. But later archival research has suggested that the woman he married um, was confused with his aunt um, who had the exact same name. So probably most likely he married a woman roughly his age, though they did not have any children. Um, marrying her though, made him immediately much wealthier. So by the time good he, move. he did a good, he pulled, right. yeah, 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 exactly. If you want to so do art, you can do yeah. a lot worse. Yeah, that's Marry right. Up. That's right. That's mm. right. And so, uh, you know, shortly, you know, by the time Bosch is, say, 30, he's in, uh, in legal documents, he's paying more in taxes than his father. So you know that he immediately jumped up in social mobility, though we don't know how much money he made from art. We have, we have literally zero idea how much money he made from art, even though we know when he bought an acreage here and sold an acreage there. We know all that. Uh, over um, in my uh, playwriting life, you got to allow me something, Brad. Sure. Over in my play playwriting life, there's this uh, young playwright named Monty uh, D. Montalegre, and we're doing his play. It's all mm -hmm. read like a metaphor or something mm -hmm. as part of the theater company. Mm -hmm. And he has a play uh, that he named after a concept that um, he and his friend came up with, and it was sort of like or a phrase. He asked his friend, uh, his friend what is the female equivalent equivalent of a sugar daddy? And the friend said, a salt mother. <laughs> <laughs> so he has a play called salt mother. Uh, and I, I think, um, I think it sounds like Bosch may have, he married, it's not a salt mother, but yeah, he, you get the idea. Something you see along why I lines. mentioned it. Yeah. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> salt mother. Uh, now, <laughs> Other than just getting him, making him more money, it immediately rose Bosch in social standing. So he became a member of, he may have been a member of the outer circle of this originally and then moved into the inner circle, but he was a member, a lifelong member of something called the Illustrious Brotherhood of Our Blessed Lady, which was a religious confraternity that still exists um, that was sort of attached to St. John's Cathedral at the time. The inner circle of this was called the Brotherhood of the Swan. And Bosch was a member of the Brotherhood of the Swan, which was 
it immediately raised you to, it was somewhere between the Kiwanis Club and City Council to be a member of the Brotherhood of the Swan. Um, now, it's interesting because before I did this research, I kind of, and I knew Bosch, I'd done, I'd done a little bit of reading on him before because I have this painting in my, you know, a print of it, obviously, in my place and, you know, kind of thinking about it. And I had thought he was this sort of isolated guy out in this, this small town, like, and that made the, the art that he created even crazier to me because it was like, what is this just kind of born out of nothing? Like it's, a, it's, an, it's, 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 even, it's even more radical when you, if you think of him as like some farm boy who's coming up with this, that's not quite accurate. So as a member of this Brotherhood of the Swan, I think we can see that he was tied um, more broadly into European culture than it might seem obvious from the town that he was in. And one way we can kind of see this is there was another guy, there was a bunch of people in the Brotherhood of the Swan, most of whom, you know, may have been important at the time, but we wouldn't know them now for what, you know, 500 years ago um, or close to it, 400 years at least. Um, but one guy who was a member of the Brotherhood of the Swan was this guy, Frederick of, of Egmont. And Frederick of Egmont was counselor to Maximilian I, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Right? Uh -huh. So okay. Bosch, Bosch hanging out records, with the guy. Okay, right. There's mm -hmm. there's records of Bosch having brother uh, and the annual Brotherhood of the Swan dinner at his house, where they would eat a swan. And <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, they're eating the swan. They're eating the swan. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not sure why it's called Brotherhood of the Swan exactly. I couldn't well, find they're, that Well, because they're eating the swans, Brad. They're eating uh, the swan. But why are they eating swan? the swan? Well, right? why, very... why wouldn't you? It's, pro it's protein, Brad. <laughs> this is the Middle true. Ages. It's not... That's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, but so the year that Frederick of Egmont joins the Brotherhood of the Swan is the same year that Bosch has the dinner at his house. So he is two steps removed from the Holy Roman Emperor, right? So he's not this isolated guy out in the middle mm -hmm. of a farm field, he is connected to the greater movements of, of, you know, European history at the time, late, late medieval European history. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, Bosch and his wife have no kids, but, um, and this, I, I'm going to hit that point a couple of times because it's important to the later interpretations. Um, they do take in a nephew and raise him, and the nephew seems to be very happy about this and names his own son Hieronymus, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, and then in 1516, Hieronymus Bosch, at the age of around 66, dies most likely of the plague. Ah, oh, yeah. the plague. The Black Death has been long over, mm. but you know the plague kind of comes and goes. It will, it will move into town, kind of like the weather, and you know it's you're going to lose some people. And in, in this a case. very strict attention, people. We are learning history. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, I want to, and, and we know a little bit about his status from his funeral, which was not a huge deal, but uh, you know, I've got something here that says his funeral cost the same as about a week's pay for a craftsman. So it was a sort of a moderate size and there was a lot of attendees and people, people knew who Bosch was in the town of, of Den Bosch. Um, now, because all of our previous episodes have occurred, you know, we're not doing somebody born in 1900, not doing somebody born in 1800, we're doing somebody born in 1450. I wanna give you a little bit of historical context just so you understand 
where are we relative to some other historical milestones you might know, right? Um, The Black Death had happened about 100 years before Bosch's birth. So the worst of it, you know, when Europe lost a third of its population, it still hadn't recovered its population by the time of Bosch's, obviously. Yeah. We're going to be talking a bit about the Black Death when we do, I believe, our next core episode on the great French actor and playwright, Antonin Artaud. Oh, because okay. he was he was deeply uh, influenced by thinking about the plague. One of his key essays is called "The Theater and the Plague." So we oh, will be we will be black death pilled uh, <laughs> both on this episode and and the episode to come. Okay, all right. Well, that's 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 very interesting, and th- these things are all connected, man. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh, uh, Europe discovering the New World in 1492, right? So that's in Bosch's lifetime, Columbus sails the ocean blue. Um, I know people want to give, want to say, well, they didn't discover it. There were already people living there. But yeah, it was still a big deal to Europeans to find it, right? I mean, it's still a huge cultural shift. Um, you've got Leonardo da Vinci, um, who's you know painting the Mona Lisa, which frankly, over my the last month of investigating all these Renaissance painters, I'm hugely unimpressed by the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> have you, you have you been to the Louvre though? I have, have you been to I see have it. Ah, I have you it. Philistine. But dude, no, go look at a Jan van Eyck. Go look sure, at sure. Yeah. Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Leonardo da Vinci, a genius. I just don't get the Mona Lisa. So uh at this time we also have Copernicus coming up with his, you know, his sun-centered model of the solar system. We've got Christian Europe facing an onslaught from the Ottomans. We've got the Reformation just about to happen. And and like any major historical vibe shift like that, there's <laughs> lead-ups to it that aren't as clearly articulated, right? As nailing a list of demands on a door. It's it's a it's a burbling up, and then that happens, and that's the moment, right? Um, the Spanish Inquisition is also at its height. And all nobody these- expects the Spanish Inquisition. Expects it. Bosch probably did expect it to come knocking on his door at some point, and it never did. Um, within this context, we have the Northern Renaissance, which is distinct, but not completely unentangled from the Italian Renaissance, right? It's slightly different. It has slightly different traditions, but much like the Italian Renaissance in painting, which was, you know, influence was paid for by the Medicis and the Vatican and all that. This is a little more DIY, I would say. A more provincial, parochial. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but you still see enormous talents in that era. You see Jan van, Jan van Eyck, who was a, a predecessor of Bosch. I don't think Jan van Eyck had the greatest of the paintings, but you can look at some key Jan van Eyck paintings and realize that nobody was more talented than him. Right. Yeah. They might have had a better painting, but nobody was more talented than Jan van Eyck. That um, name is so fun, too. It sounds like yeah. he should be putting up pop-ups in Santa Monica and charging you $800 for sneakers. These are Jan van Eyck's. <laughs> right. That's very good. <laughs> Series um, one. A couple other things that are happening. Technology. The printing press was, uh, came out in 1440, right? Ten years before Bosch is born. Seismic shift. Oh, huge. 14- Comparable to the internet. Oh, absolutely. 1440, it's invented. By 1500, there have been over 20 million books printed. Right? Whoa! 60 years, 20 million books. There's only 60 million people in Europe. Right. And the vast majority of them and cannot read. Everyone needs a library and everybody mm-hmm. needs a copy of the Bible. Everybody mm-hmm. needs, yeah, I can imagine. Right. Wow. Right. 
Right. Um, so then you, and then on top of this, you have this gradual humanistic slash reformation movement. That's all kind of happening. Right. So I just kind of wanted to place us, place us there. Um, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of his work that we know about, but again, I'm going to focus on the garden of earthly delights. It's the most interesting. It's, it's all good. And Brad, yeah. what are we going to do for the Patreon? Do you have the subject oh, for the yes, Patreon episode? I should okay. mentioned that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, we are going to talk about the connection ideologically, philosophically, historically, between Bosch and the Nazis. Ho! <laughs> yeah, All right. we're going to do a little yeah. Indiana Jones mm. thing. It's going to be cool. Ooh, right. so if you want to <laughs> hear that, you've got to subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. So yeah. we'll talk about Bosch and the Nazis on I'll the I'll tell you, episode. the connection is tenuous, but it is real. So, okay. Wow, okay. <laughs> okay. Oof, so, I'm excited. Um, um, so the main painting we've got, this Garden of Earthly Delights, or that's not even the main painting we've got. It's the one everybody sees and talks about because it's probably the wildest and most novel. Um, but there's shades that's from that to his most conventional. There's many, many shades of, of different amounts of novelty and innovation. Um, there is uh, uh, the Adoration of the Magi, which we may talk about a little bit, the Marriage Feast at uh, Cannae. Uh, the Last Judgment, for which he did at least three different altar pieces, but we only have one complete. That's um, funny. He's like, no, this is the Last Judgment. No, <laughs> for this real. Is the last last this Judgment time two. For real. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a Temptation of Saint Anthony, which is great. Uh, he has a Haywain triptych, which I think is actually his funniest painting. Um, uh, and. He's got a many, many, many sketches and drawings. He earlier in his career he had some pieces that weren't triptychs or altar pieces, but I think those were probably the high dollar items. So when he hit his mature period, he was doing. Mo- it seems like he was doing mostly these big altar pieces. And crazily enough, some of a lot of the stuff that, of his that survives is like one panel from an altar piece, where you know there's three of them at least, but they're just they're just gone, right? Lost to history. Nobody knows where where they are. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. Uh. Now, let's talk about the, the Garden of Earthly Delights. Okay, so some of the history of it, we don't know exactly who commissioned it for sure. It's speculation. Um, but here's the thing that we do know. In July of 1517, about a year after Hieronymus Bosch's death, Cardinal Luigi of Aragon goes on his diplomatic tour of Europe, and he visits the palace of Count Henry III of Nassau. This place, this palace has like these secret doorways and strange rooms and cabinets of wonder. And um, in one of these rooms is the Garden of Earthly Delights. And Joseph Leo Corner, this, this Harvard art historian, his, what he says about it is the room was where Count Henry III, when his guests, dinner guests got drunk, he would sort of shove them in there as like a cruel joke. And they'd be wasted and they would see, they'd be confronted by the Garden of <laughs> Earthly Delights. And it would, you know, it would have whatever effect it had on them. It'd get them horny or freak them out or, you know, it was a kind of a cruel joke that he liked to play on people. And Count Henry III of NASA was, a, by all accounts, a pretty cruel uh, guy. So that's where it is in July of 1517. Whether that was who commissioned it was this Count Henry III or not is not entirely clear. Um, but that's where it ended up. Now, a little bit later, 1567, the Duke of Alba, um, who was seeking to crush heresy in the Netherlands, um, he 
expends a lot of time and resources to get his hands on it. Um, the painting had been passed down to William of Orange. William of Orange was the Duke of Alba's sworn enemy um, and uh, the leader of the Protestants, by the way, though we're not going to get you know super, super deep into all of that, but uh, it is the relevant. Enemies, the enemies of the one true faith. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um, now, Alba was so obsessed with getting this painting that he actually seized the concierge of William of Orange and tortured the guy for 18 months to give up the location of the painting. What do you mean yeah. tortured? Tortured uh, how? Uh, uh, breaking all of his bones, pulling out his nails. Uh, parts of his body were stripped to the bone. There was a period of time where he was so badly damaged that he couldn't eat. Uh, oh and then finally he gave up whether God. the location of the Garden of Earthly Delights was. Why did he right. want the painting so much? Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit more later during one of the interpretations. But uh, I think what happened is, well, I'll kind of say it now and then we'll explicate it further later. What Joseph Leo Corner says is that it depicts, the center of it depicts a complete breakdown of, religious legal religious and spiritual order and law and corner claims that the central panel could be used as almost like a meditative piece to inspire like a tyrannical urge to crush your enemies right it's like if we don't if we don't get things under control this is what it will be like and so we have to you we have to crush all of our enemies and it would like inflame that kind of passion in a, in a leader like the duke of alva now which hey man it, i don't know maybe <laughs> the guy was just a sadist well, uh, i, I mean, mean i think i think that's true i think that's yeah, true too yeah. i think it was probably right. commissioned by a sadist and then the sadists wanted to get it king philip the uh, second of spain was also obsessed with getting the only reason we have any of this bosch stuff is because king philip the second like spent the the name you know uh, but in today's standards millions of dollars to obtain as many of these paintings as he possibly could um now Corner makes the claim, and I don't know how true it is because he says it with a wink, but he also seems like he's kind of serious about it, that, um, you know, you had the Reformation and then say 100 years later, you have the, the, um, the 30 years war. And then after the 30 years war, Europe is religiously divided in a completely new way, right? You've got the, the, the Catholics and the Catholics and the Protestants, the Habsburgs have, have lost power. But, um, you know, I'm not going to do we're not a 30 years war podcast in this case. But yeah. Corner claims that the Duke of Alba, all of the efforts he he expended to seize this painting, the laws that he dismissed in order to seize this painting was a domino in that change and it was a domino in the process that led to the 30 years war that led to all of these other things so he says it's sort of inextricable from from the, the that that history literally this painting where is this painting now well presently? it was handed down by king philip ii had it in his cabinet of wonders and then it became part of the escurial uh it, it eventually was given to the prado in spain and it has mm -hmm. stayed there ever since in madrid <laughs> How large is it roughly if you had to? Um, it's about 12 feet wide. Oh, it's quite large. It's big. Yeah. It's oh, a big, okay. It's a big, mm. big painting for sure. Mm. It's, about, it's about, it's about right. So it might be 11 feet. Um, so yeah. So 
I, I mean, I didn't realize how significant. I mean, I don't know that there's that many other paintings that you can really say. It's just a fascinating bit it's, of history. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, it's got a bit of that, doesn't it? It, does, oh, it right? belongs in a museum. Right, right. They're torturing guys and like <laughs> keep whipping him until he gives it up. Right. You know, this, like, yeah. This what? this painting has magic powers. <laughs> yeah, I think they kind of thought that it did. You know, yeah, well, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so now, now that doesn't tell us a whole lot about who Bosch is and. We're not going to know a whole lot about who Bosch is, but we're going to have some ideas about who he could be. And I want to do that by walking you through some of the main interpretations of, of this painting specifically. Okay, so the basic interpretation, if you type in Google something called Garden of Earthly Delights Explained, this is the explained that they'll just give you, right? It's, misog it's misogynistic Christian propaganda. That's it. It's misogynistic hmm. Christian propaganda trying to tell you that, you know, Eve sinned and, and tempted a Adam yeah. and that led to the fall. And then that took us all hmm. down. Yeah, maybe there's more to it. I think that's the thing. I don't necessarily even think that that's wrong. I think it's too simplistic because, I mean, look at this. this look at this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? there's a lot going on here. <laughs> yeah, hmm. exactly. Exactly. So um, now the one thing and, and the They'll also, I don't like how they simplify the, the innovative qualities to it, the idiosyncras idiosyncrasies of it. There are a few things, touch points we can point, we can kind of reflect on that do help us understand why the style seems so innovative. Because this thing doesn't even fit into Northern Renaissance trends either. Uh, it fits in. There's, there's people who are copiers and followers of Bosch, but it doesn't fit into anything that came before him, seemingly. But if you kind of look at individual pieces, you, you, you start to realize that he was taking um, inspiration from what are called drolleries, which are margin sketches, often funny or obscene, from illuminated manuscripts, right? Aha. Our, our, friend, our great friend, Stephanie Leahy, Stephanie would probably Leahy know all about that. that. Yeah, yeah, right. Drolleries, little, Drolleries. little oh, here's a, here's a little naked man. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, and he's, he's, he's farting a, and going like this. No, you know? he's, <laughs> right. yeah, little things okay. like that. So that's yeah, one. Sure. Another thing that he's taking images from, it almost certainly, is something called the Nuremberg Chronicle, which was a very early printed encyclopedia um, that had pictures of human history, pictures from the Bible, pictures of like mythological figures and things like that. But it would almost be like, it was like the equivalent of like a pulp magazine at the time almost. Like, that's not a great analogy, but it's the closest thing they would have had to something like that. And, and Bosch almost certainly read it because anybody who could read read the Nuremberg Chronicle in that, in that place in time. Um, he, was also, uh, he was also drawing from, um, well, there had been some, it, some people say that he was drawing, drawing from observations by people who traveled to the New World. That may or may not be true. He was probably drawing from um, Albrecht Durer, who he most likely met. Albrecht um, Durer had... Uh, he had a, he has a famous drawing of a of a um, rhinoceros, um, yeah. which would have been unco very uncommon for people at the time. Um, and there were some other people who traveled to Africa, and then they published like bestiaries of animals. Um, so he may have been drawing from that as well. He definitely the giraffe in the Garden of Eden panel. He definitely took from from one of those types of books. Um, so I guess my point there is 
despite all of the novelty, you can point at individual things and say, well, that's where that came from. That's where that came from. Some of it is coming from, there were a bunch of um, pamphlets or booklets at the time about these Irish visionaries, descriptions of hell. And some of those square with the hell panel. So he's, he's, He's inspired by things that are going on around him. And I don't mean to say that he's not coming up with any of this on his own, but, but as you contextualize it, you start to see like, okay, there is, there is a reference for some of this. Yeah. Stuff. He's not going to pull this all wholesale out of his no. mind's eye. Right. Uh, right. He had never seen an elephant. I see an elephant. He had never seen a right. giraffe, etc. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. Um, now, so, Okay, so now I'm going to get into one of, the, one of the big interpretations. And this one held a lot of sway for a long time. This is called, we'll call this the Wilhelm Franger interpretation. Um, now, Wilhelm Franger wrote this <coughs> um, monstrous book right here. Okay, and now you think that this is going to be just an art book. And there are plates of all the Bosch work. But it is, you know, it's, it's a book book. Um, and I read a good chunk of it, and it's fascinating and bizarre. Um, Wilhelm Franger is a German, as you may have guessed, uh, historian, art historian, folklorist. Um, even his biggest critic call, uh, said that he had a truly formidable knowledge of alchemy, Neoplatonism, and Gnostic lore. I love Gnostic lore. Um, as well as ancient religions. So, so, so wait, so Bosch had these things? No, 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 sorry. Franger. Franger. Talking about Franger, Franger. now. Okay. Yep. This is Franger right. interpretation. And this was one of like the biggest texts ever pulled together about okay. Bosch specifically in Got the it. early in the early 40s. Um, uh, so what Franger said, and it's interesting, and Terrence McKinnon and some other people found it convincing, um, and other people say it's completely nonsense, um, but it's interesting. Um Franger was convinced that Bosch was basically the court painter for the grand master of a secretive Adamite sect by the name of Jacob van Almengian. I'm probably mispronouncing that, um, who barely exists in the historical record at all. Mm. Um, so now if Bosch was part of this sect, um, and no one in academia seems to agree with this, though, though Franger makes a reasonable case for such an outlandish claim. Uh, it does have profound relevance to this painting because it's a entirely heretical sect. Um, I don't know, Kevin, have you ever heard the term Adamite? I have, but yeah. I don't know much beyond just, oh, maybe I read it in a book at some point. You're reading some crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah right. conspiracy theory book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Fair, fair enough. And, and, and I didn't know much about it at all before getting into this either. I kind of, same thing. I'd kind of heard the term or whatever. And it says Adam in it. So it's got something to do with Adam. Right. Um, but uh, specifically, Adamites are Christians who have this idea ideology around adam and eve in the paradise that's kind of where their focus is i mean they're christian sort of i suppose um they're small it was small and it was secretive obviously it was mostly run by the the laity um and it's one of these groups like a lot of gnostic groups though they're not 
Gnostics properly, I don't think, um, where the descriptions of them mostly come from their critics, right? Because they weren't writing their own stuff because they were, they didn't want to get burned or hung. So they just met uh, their groups, right? <laughs> so, yeah, right, right. Right. So they don't, they're not writing pamphlets and distributing them. Um, but let's give you, I'm going to give you a, uh, a description from the Franger of what the Adamites were like. Um, and it's interesting. There's, there are ways in which this painting could be, it, this painting could have Adamite influences, but we're going to have to kind of get our hands around what an Adamite is and why are they secretive and what's actually different about them. Right? A-D-A-M-I-T-E. Adamite. That's right. Yeah. Like mm. of Adam. Of right? Adam. Mm. Yeah. The Adamites, and this is from the Franger. Um, actually, I think this is an August, uh, St. Augustine's description of the Adamites. The Adamites are called after Adam and emulate his paradisiac nakedness as it existed before the fall. They reject marriage because before Adam sinned and was expelled from paradise, he did not know his wife. They believe that there would have been no marriages later either if no one had sinned. So men and women assemble naked. Naked they listen to the readings, naked they pray, and naked they celebrate the sacraments. For this reason, they regard their church as paradise. Right? Another description. I, I could see that bothering some of the people, bothering maybe the <laughs> yes. clergy and yeah, yeah exactly. other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's another description. Um, this guy, uh, Theodorite, Theodorite, uh, connects the Adamites with the sexually com communistic uh, Carpocratians, who pro who proclaimed a natural law of free, equal, and communal ownership of all earthly goods, and even went to the excessive lengths of demanding free sexual intercourse with closest blood relatives as well as public intercourse. According to Clement, a certain Prodicus, uh, who is a Adamite, is said to have established excesses of this kind as a mystic communion. Right. There's nothing new under the sun, is there, Brad? <laughs> there really isn't. There really isn't. Um, I'm going to find another description of it um, as well. Uh, they Care, Be careful out there, people. Try yeah. not to end up in a cult. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing here is what's important is uh, I, I've got one kind of description of this I want to really, I really want to give you. And we need to, I need to kind of find it here. So they... The, the deal, the criticisms of this is by people like Joseph Leo Corner, who I respect immensely after doing all of this research and whose, whose interpretation we're going to dig into further and is maybe the closest to the correct interpretation if there is one. Um, but Joseph Leo Corner basically says, and others say, well, there were no Adamites. There were no Adamites around, ba uh, around Denbos in 1450 to 1500. So this doesn't even make any sense. I did some further reading and it turns out that there probably were some Adamites or it's reasonable to suppose there were Adamite sex in, and that's S E C T S. Of course. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, is the, to be rather blunt about it, yeah. is it because there's so much nudity in the painting yes. and they're yes. thinking, Oh, maybe this is an Adamite there. This is a pitch. Right. For the yeah. Society. Mm. Right. So, so what, and, and, and here's, here's the logic, I think, where this works. And we're going to look at a couple individual aspects of the painting that I think are most convincing from Franger. But the thing you have to think about is the size of this painting and the style of it. This isn't something that Bosch would have been painting under his own... Um, on his own dollar, right? He's this is not something, doing, this isn't, he's not doing this on spec. Somebody right. commissioned this. Right. Somebody commissioned this just because 
it, the size, I mean, the size of it's huge and it's in the style of an altarpiece, right? So it's, if it's in the style of an altarpiece, it probably is being used as an altarpiece in some capacity. Um, and altarpieces at that time, a triptych altarpiece in the North, what you would have had is a, um, a biblical scene um, in the center um, and then flanking it, you would have most likely had a saint on either side. And those saints may have been the saint that the church was named after. Maybe if there was a saint that was regionally important or something like that. And that's the convention. You see, if you go through, you know, late medieval triptychs, that's what the, almost all of them are. This clearly isn't that at all, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's uh, no saints. You have God and you have Adam and you have Eve. Other than that, none of these are character, are biblical figures or characters whatsoever, uh, uh, at least not on the face of it. So that's, that's the one thing where it, it seems convincing to me that like this could be the altarpiece for some kind of alternative group. That, that I doesn't... Yeah, really. they, they put the red light on, they play yeah. a little weird, funky, weird right. loop music, right. they, and they're they all... put the altarpiece up, and they yeah. all they get their clothes off, and they start, they're going to do the sacraments naked. Yes, that wouldn't exactly. offend anybody. No, no, that would not bother anybody whatsoever, <laughs> right? <clears throat> I think, um, I was going to try to find this one description, so, oh, there, there was um, some, in, there, there were Adamites, so the one thing Corner and others say there were no Adamites around. But here's the deal. So in 1250, there were 2,000 Adamites at least in Cologne, which isn't that far. And there were 1,000 in Paris. Now, that's 200 years before, but it's a secretive group, right? It's, it's not, they're, they're avoiding persecution. So, of course, you're not going to know everybody who's in the group, right? So, I, I don't think it's ridiculous to assume that there may have been Adamites around Bosch. I don't think that's insane. Um, Franger makes some leaps of logic because he doesn't have a lot of evidence. He says that Bosch is under this grandmaster who like I said, barely exists in the historical record, does seem to be a person, but then very uh, little other than that is known about him. Um, uh, but that is was... the best kind of grandmaster to be, by the way. <laughs> right. <It's, laughs> secret you're one. gone. <laughs> right. If you're, if you're a grandmaster <laughs> and everybody knows your name, you're doing it wrong. Unless you're grandmaster yeah. flash. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Cause your head's going to roll, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be careful. Yeah. So, um, they now now we didn't I feel like we didn't quite get into the religion of it what an Adamite really is so the part the idea of it is that you can have if if you have sex it doesn't matter marriage doesn't matter and you are turned towards God you are doing this and somehow in the glory of God then it is not a sin right and, no, and I'm so, an Adamite. Right, 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 exactly. We're all yeah, we're living, we're living in an Atomite society right now. Uh, we just don't even know it. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, <laughs> so the idea is like, if you can restrain from it being completely an indulgence and sensual delight, although it's not that it's not sensually delightful, it's that you somehow don't fall for it and you don't forget God when you it's do It's a bit it. of a Gnostic, a little Gnostic. A little, a little bit. Yeah. And the idea, I think, from reading some of this stuff is like, as you approach climax, that is a moment of like, of, of coming into union with God, the moment of climax with another person, right? And it's not really, I understand it's not, conventional Christian, but like, it's not that crazy of a religious concept to me to think that you might make that moment some kind of sacred union thing, 
right? I mean, it's the moment of creation. It's, pretty, you know. Of course. Yeah. yeah it's so, pretty, pretty hardcore heresy. It, it is. It's, it's yeah. incredibly heretical. But to mm-hmm. me, it's not, you know. It's also it's, pretty metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very, it yeah. actually reminds me yeah. of Miss, <laughs> Mr. Crowley. <laughs> We're going to get to it. it yeah, we, we, this is great, Brad. I had no yeah. idea that you yeah. would get me, get us to a sex cult when right. we were doing yeah. well, Rodimus Bosch. Cool. This is, I tried to describe it in one phrase, and it's a Christian esoteric sex magic cult. Yeah, that's uh, what they are. Yeah. Cool. Um, um, and I want to give you one quote that describes them, and then we're going to look at some individual parts of the painting. Um, and, and the group that Franger says Bosch was part of was the Brethren of the Free Spirit, which was a real group. There's a book about just the Brethren of the Free Spirit out there. I read bits of it. Um, this was a, when some, one of them was brought before, the best way we could describe it and understand it with modern mind is like a court proceeding where they were being prosecuted for being an Adamite. Mm. Um, the one gentleman, Friar Willem, he said, he who possesses the knowledge of, of God has paradise in his own breast. He who has mortal sin on his conscience, he has hell in his mouth like a rotten tooth. Ooh. So it's all a mindset thing, right? It's like, it's a sort of antinomian thing where like, I'm right with God, so I can't sin, uh, right? Like I'm actually, because you're, you're in, you've, you've achieved some kind of higher plane of existence in which you, you and God are... You and God have a deal. (laughs) I love this idea of Bosch wandering around. He's he's being commissioned to make a painting like the Garden of Earthly Delights. He might be part of this uh, esoteric Christian heretical sex cult. He's eating swans. Right. (laughs) Hanging out with... He's hanging out with the guy who knows the Holy Roman Empire. This is this is fascinating, uh, yeah. and of course we're we're in the realm of speculation here, Brad. To be we to are be, we yes we are we are. Yeah. But but this is the thing with the guy that so little is known about. You almost have to speculate a little bit. Like all mm. every one of these interpretations at some point takes a leap of faith. Every mm-hmm. single one of them, and it, so it kind of comes down to like which leap is most convinced is, is, is easiest for you to take. Um, I don't really a hundred percent buy the Franger interpretation. Um, but I do think it tells us something about the anxieties of people around that time. And I do think aspects of the painting can be read this way. Um, there's an awful lot of nudity in the painting. There is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, there are numerous naked bodies. Right. Oh yeah. 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 No, yeah. there's, there's, there's no way, there's no way around it. So, um, uh, so I want to talk about, let's talk about a couple of the images. So in the central panel for folks who are listening at home in the middle panel, um, almost in the, uh, cutting crossways, almost across the middle of the central panel, there's an area that I'm going to call the vortex. And this is a, a parade of people, uh, of men riding animals. And in the middle of that, there is a circular sort of pond body of water where there are women there are no women on the out uh, riding the animals around the outside i'm going to call this the vortex and we're going to mention this in a couple of different interpretations um now franger here's how franger describes that vortex the profusion of fertility symbols because it's all these men riding a bunch of naked men riding a bunch of different animals and naked women in the middle right okay so He's calling this a profusion of fertility symbols and the jaunty, high-spirited merriment of this ceremonial cavalcade show that it is part of a vegetation cult whose object is to promote the fertility of the earth through the mana emanating from the sexual potency of the fruits, animals, and young men. 
But a moral didactic idea is also associated with this magical function. The animals being ridden are incarnations of the instincts, which are seen in a positive light as the sustaining forces of nature. The riders harness and master these instincts, but do not abuse the animalistic bearers of life through excessive use of rein or spur. Their old masters, the birds, establish a wise balance. The young, women, the young men whom the birds once ushered into life now bring it to the wisdom of their masters. <clears throat> um, all young lovers believe their happiness to be unique, to be a unique, holy novel experience, far beyond the ordinary. What they must strive for in this nuptial hour is the attainment and preservation of a lasting balance between sensual happiness and peace of the soul, the integrity of innocent love even in the most sensual delight. This is regarded as the highest mastery of life, the crown of creation, whose symbol, the pure egg, is carried in the glorious triumphal procession, solidly balanced on the head of a young man. Now, if you look at the lower part of the vortex, there is a guy carrying an unbroken white egg on his head. I don't know if you can see that. It's sort of um, the very... When you, when you first start your Twitter account. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, an and it's important. I think it's important to note, too, that egg is in the dead center of the central panel. The mm, whole thing I see is aligned mm. to that egg. I think, mm. that, I think that does actually matter. Okay, so that's how Franger sees the vortex. I'm going to talk about another important symbol in this painting that we're going to see in multiple interpretations. And that's what it, from the hell panel that we're going to call the tree man. So you see the guy, the, the, he's got a big white butt, but it's carved out. Um, he's got the disc on his head, his tree legs. Sure, sure. You see him, right? He's, 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 he's one of the more novel, kind of unusual creatures in this whole thing. Okay, so let me tell you what Franger thinks of that. Um, uh, let's see. <clears throat> right in the midst of hell stands a monster harshly lighted, jagged, and incoherent in outline. Its feet are stuck into great boats. Its legs are rotting tree branches, some kind of metaphoric joint, uh, sorry, metamorphic joint, half knee, half elbow, leads to a shoulder out of which the trunk of the infernal creature swells like a burst egg. Withered limbs branching out from the legs have pierced its corpse-colored shell. The head looks back over the shoulder. Out of the livid, melancholy face, two eyes scan the night of hell. Their glance does not meet ours. On its head, the monster carries a disc on which stands a pink bagpipe with lascivious couples disguised in fantastic costumes promenading ceremoniously around it. The same bagpipe appears again on a smaller scale on a flag hoisted above the cracked egg. The interior of the egg is a fantastic sinister tavern where in the flickering firelight, three guests sit around a pitcher on a bare table while the infernal hostess fills another pitcher from the barrel. A man, tired of all the racket, leans on the rim of the eggshell, looking down at the ice-bound water in which the ghastly creature's boat feet are frozen fast. Taken as a whole, this monstrosity looks more like a duck than anything else. Um, this is how the late Gothic imagination might have imagined the mythological nemesis, the goddess of the primeval world who assumed the form of a goose and according to Eratosthenes, <laughs> brooded the fateful world egg. So this is... Aristophanes? Um, uh, Aris no, it's not. That's not that. It's E-R-A-T-O-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. -E -E anyway. I'm not going to try to do I, it. <laughs> I, nah, I can't pronounce it. I know. Yeah. I, that's how I try it. My mouth tries yeah, to yeah, pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually not what it is. So this is a sort of a satanic figure, right? And I yeah, think clearly that's fair to say for any of these interpretations, that's what most of them are going to point to. Now, 
one thing um, I want to point out about this painting, and this is to me the most convincing part of the Franger interpretation. <clears throat> okay, so in the Franger interpretation, this is an Adamite sect. The middle panel is actually the paradise we can live in if we come into union with God. That's the idea, right? You could live in this place. It's beautiful. It's, you get to have your sensual desires. You get to live in union with God. You never, the fall never kind of happened, right? Now, if you look, <clears throat> trying to figure out the best way, it's in the lower right corner, uh, the lower right quarter of the central panel, okay? There is, you see a, a red kind of teepee thing with some people in it. It's a fairly yes. bright red. Yes, I do. Okay. And uh, yeah. I'm going to encourage people who are listening to this podcast, we will do our best to describe it for you yeah. so you can imagine it in your mind's eye. But it probably wouldn't hurt to look just at it. look at the painting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mm. think so. Yeah. I think so. I see I'm this sort of the, red. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you go just below and to the right of that, there mm. is a kind of a uh, orangish coral colored portal sort of thing. Yeah. Sure. Where people are coming out. Right. And they're coming out from underground from the direction of hell. Ah. Okay. So now Bosch claim or, or Franger claims that the, there's one figure in there who looks a little wide, looks a little older than everybody else. Everybody else in this is kind of a nubile young person. There's yeah. one figure Franger yeah, claims is are. a little bit older. Yeah. 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 Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Franger claims this is the grand master of the Adamite sect showing people the way out of hell, which is the interiorized existence they have living in reality and bringing and guiding them back to paradise. Now, this is the thing. This, is, this whole Adamite thing is a ridiculous claim. None of the other interpretations explain what that is, what that Interesting. thing is. Nobody else even talks about it. It's a little bit of like a Doctor Who telephone booth type thing, isn't it? Right. Right, right. With this lovely orange color. And the orange, now that I look more closely, the, the palette of that portal does seem reminiscent of the palette of hell. Uh, yeah, The, the right. orangishness, yeah. Yeah, hmm. no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Hmm. So I, again, I'm not saying the Franger interpretation is right, but there are some oddities that the Frang Franger does, is able to explain some things that some other people aren't able to explain. Now, that, he's, that Franger guy, he's up to something. Other people are able to explain stuff he doesn't explain, and some of his claims are a little ridiculous. Um, I want to point you to... Now, here's, here's how out of whack Franger gets. I'm going to point you to one more thing from his... Um, maybe one or two more Franger things. But one, I want to show you how kind of crazy he is. Okay. So if you go in the central panel, you move up to... Uh, up near the top third, there are these five strange structures, Right. Yes, I see them. Okay, now the left one, the pink one, if you look at the lower corner where it meets the water, it's very small, but there are these dolphin warrior knight guys. I don't know if you can see them. They're very small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. one larger one that's demonstrating something to a mermaid woman, but there's a whole crew of them coming up. Now I'm going to give you what Franger says about this, and I'm giving you this because this shows you how insane... Franger is, I think. Okay, so, um, oh, do I have it? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> a company of dolphin knights in two close ranks come swimming in from the left, all exactly alike, their faces hidden by lowered visors. In the cleft of a dowsing wand, they carry their emblem before them, the dolphins sacred to Apollo. Other dolphins frolic around them in the water. 
The dolphin belongs to the whale family and is a mammal. The Greeks revered it as the mother animal. The root of its name appears also in Adelphoi, meaning brothers of the same womb, and Delphi, the earth womb of the oracle of Apollo. Just as in the six months of winter, Apollo, the sun god, shares his oracle with its opposite, Dionysus, guide of the dead, so brothers of the same womb receive at once the bright lot of life and dark lot of death. On early Christian tombstones, the dolphin appears as a benevolent guide to the kingdom of the dead, just as it stood for a transitional stage in the soul's journey toward higher rebirth in the Pythagorean doctrine of metempsychosis. Clearly, so Franger says, clearly, <laughs> the, the masked identical dolphin knights represent the greater army of the dead, the universal brotherhood on its way from temporal to eternal life. So clearly that's what that is. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I could have pointed out Franger interprets goes through and interprets basically every little aspect of this painting. I kind of wanted to pick, you know, one that was convincing one that other people talk about and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not a hundred percent on board with this idea that he's part of a secretive cult. Um, but maybe, right. Again, this is a strange painting. It's, it's weird that this painting even exists. So why wouldn't the explanation be? Kind There's of nothing else like it. There really isn't. No. Yeah. There's people after him who tried to copy it, but before him, there's, there's really nothing like this. Right. Um, now I'm going to segue here from the Franger interpretation to the Joseph Leo corner interpretation, but I think it's important to point out a couple things before I get too deep. Corner says that, what Franger did is sort of like anti-scholarship and none of it actually makes sense. Now we're going to get into that somewhat. Franger's going to make a reappearance in the, in the after dark episode when we talk about the Nazis. But mm. one thing that's important to say to know is corner does say that this is not a Christian, a strictly Christian altarpiece. Okay. But he also says the Adamite sect never existed. Right. So, if it's not Christian and it's not Adamite, well, okay, well, what is it exactly? Okay, so let's get into the Joseph Leo Corner interpretation. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> Joseph Leo Corner, he's a guy still alive. I watched a couple, of, uh, a few of his lectures. He also wrote a book on um, Bosch and Bruegel, which I didn't re read. Um, I read so much that, I, and I found that kind of a little bit later and his, his lectures were so good. Um, he says that this is a painting of the enemy. Okay. <laughs> this whole thing is about the enemy. And what's the enemy? The enemy is the self. Okay. So let's kind of, let's kind of walk through this a little bit. Um, partially you got to think about, okay, this was in corners interpretation. This painting was commissioned by count Henry the third of Nassau to be in his pleasure palace, to be a kind of cruel joke. Right now, the question I have about that is if it was, commissioned to be a cruel joke was Bosch in on the joke because that makes a difference right did he just it, do it for money it does have the vibe of something that shouldn't exist that is I mean if it's an altarpiece what church would have it exactly right yeah, yeah right it, it doesn't it yeah and so so that's why that's why this the 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 basic interpretation of oh it's just christian propaganda doesn't work i don't think it doesn't explain it right um so 
you know, so the we'll thing we'll think about is if it was meant to be in this pleasure palace as a kind of a joke, as something to titillate and entice and, and, and maybe even uh, use as blackmail, like, you know, you, you get your friend, you know, Count Henry III of Nassau gets a, 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 somebody stirred up and then he's got blackmail on him, right? He's like, you got excited. You, you know, you got excited looking at the Bosch piece, <laughs> right? Now I got you. Like a, right, like a right. you know, like a compromise kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, one thing, now the other thing corner says, and I think this has holds a lot of water is that this entire painting is about the metaphysical history of desire. Now, in order to really understand this, we need to look at something. We need to go to the, the left panel, which is the, the, the garden panel, the Adam and Eve panel. And we look at Adam's sight line. Adam's sight line is slightly diagonal to up and to the right. And it passes through Eve. And then it passes through what we call the vortex, that parade of men and animals and it, in the central panel. And it keeps going and it keeps going. And Adam in the left panel, lower left panel, is making direct eye contact with the tree man in the hell panel who's turned around looking back at him. Do you kind of see that? How that makes a line? Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, see so it. The, the idea is Adam is presented with Eve Desire is invented in that moment, right? It's the start of the free will of humanity. And then this leads to insanity, right? <laughs> like a, an emergency situation and complete breakdown and ultimately leads, ends in despair, a Dantean Oof. icebound inferno thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I kind of buy that. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Know, that's, that seems like there's something real, there's something real there. Um, now, in some ways, this is like an inver- inverse, inverted interpretation of Franger. Franger, basically, the two of them are sort of saying the middle panel is the same thing, that this is if the fall never happened, except Franger says it's a good thing, and, and Corner says it's, Bosch doesn't think it's a good thing, right? It, it's similar interpretations, but flip sides of it. Right. I yeah. think, yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. So mm. I'm going to talk about the, so I'm going to talk about a couple things that corner some image, specific images that corner um, talks about again in the central panel, what we call the vortex, right? Um, one thing Franger leaves out, the vortex is going counterclockwise. It's going to the left. Left is sinister in medieval times, right? Sure. I, I mean, quite literally, that's the Latin. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think Franger is ac- accounting for that. And I think it actually matters. Um, now, if you go just above the vortex to the, the middle of those five structures, you might have to zoom in kind of on this a little bit. Um, there's a structure where the base of it is a blue orb. You see that mm-hmm. with a hole yeah. in it? I see so, the orb. Yeah. In the hole is what I think is the only actual lewd sex act in the entire painting. It's dark. Um, it's craven. It's like, he's actually like reaching and grabbing her vagina. Like mm. a lot of this stuff seems very childish in this painting, right? It's like, it's in some ways it's, they're, they're represented as adult bodies, but there is an aspect to a lot of it where like, if you put two naked kids together, little kids together, what they would kind of do. It, it's also a little cartoonish. Yeah, they're, right. doing, they're doing handstands. Right, they're, right. They're leaning over and there's like a little bit of a flower covering the rump. It's this right. 
it, it, Terry Gilliam was clearly influenced by right. this Monty right. Python animator. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's a little like fairyland almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then you go in this hole and it's dark. Like it's all of a sudden something is creepy about it. Corner says that this is the only actual sex act in the painting that all the rest of the stuff is almost sex or simulated sex or right at the edge of sex but this is where it's actually happening um and i don't know i just think that that's interesting also it's directly in the central line of the painting right down Mm -hmm. the middle of the painting so if you were to a triptych closes right um if you were to open the painting you this is what this is if you open the painting by a crack, you would see this image, this woman. Yeah, being just taken. hang on here. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. zooming in here. It's yeah. small. It's quite small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is like the only place where actual dirty sex is happening. Okay. You're, so, talk, you're talking about the hole in the middle of the orb. Yeah. There's, a, there's like four people in there. One of them is just a butt. <laughs> one of them you yeah. just see the butt i just see the butt <laughs> yeah yeah yep. and then the one is a woman and there's somebody like behind her and then there's somebody sort of next to her who's reaching over and like grabbing her crotch area sure um, sure yeah so uh yeah this suggests to us that this entire central panel is possibly about as we call it on our show somdomy <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback for Oscar Wilde listeners. Yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> what did now, that come from in, in Oscar Wilde? Was it that just was, a... That was uh, when Oscar Wilde was sleeping with that guy whose father, yeah. the Queensberry guy. Uh, of course, yeah. He the, wrote the, out the a man. note accusing ah, him of somnomy. Yes, that's right. I remember. <laughs> and I think like the libel case kind of depended on that misspelling or something. <laughs> I remember, right? <laughs> well, I didn't actually accuse him of sodomy. I accused him of somnomy, <laughs> which is, which is a, some other weird move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, I think there's a good argument that this is about sodomy in some ways because there's a lot of butts in this painting. Right? I don't think anybody can say there's not a lot of butts. I mean, the tree man's butt, the butt in that, that central aperture, you can see probably, I don't know, 200 butts in the central panel. Finally, um, we're getting to the Kelly interpretation of the Garden <laughs> of Earthly Delights. Now, what you're, butts, what, you're butts, looking, butts. <laughs> what you're looking at, what you're looking at here, awful lot of butts. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's about... This is about the moment when the butt was invented. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you, are, you are correct. There are a lot of rumps. There are a lot of rumps. Now, here's where I think it's interesting. Well, there's interesting aspects of there being a lot of rumps. One of them is... All right, so sodomy was actually a big deal to these people at this time. Still um, a big deal. It's still a big deal. Um, we just don't prosecute people for it anymore. Now, um, in, in around Bosch's time, here's just some stats just to give you a sense of how seriously they took it. Around Bosch's time in the city of Bruges, um, in the course of 50 years around Bosch's time, 90 people were executed for sodomy, for the most part, man on man. Right. This is one stat we have. So, you know, you're killing somebody, a couple people every year just to make sure everybody knows what's up. You know, Um, all sex except for procreative sex was sinful. Right. In this in this milieu. Hmm. Um, I think to understand, I think there's there's two things to understand about this that that corner stresses is relevant to this painting. And the more I think about it, the more I think he's right, that it's helpful for understanding this painting. Why is sodomy wrong to these people, right? One reason 
is it's a turn away from God and a turn towards the self and thereby a turn towards nothing, right? So there's a certain kind of evil to that, right? The idea being, you know, this is the reason that sex is there, the reason that you have sexual compulsions is to encourage you to procreate, to engage in this, this narrative of humanity by contributing to it. And to do it in a way that doesn't do that or can't do that is sinful because it's a turn away from God. Okay, that's, that's the religious interpretation. Now, Corner makes the point, and we can see that maybe in this painting, that like, hey, if you just go and have a bunch of sex for no reason, you end up in hell. There is a way of seeing the, pa- the painting that way. That would be a very simple, straight-ahead, esoteric reading of the painting. Yeah, Yeah, sure. agreed, agreed. And I think, there's, I think there's a little bit of that there. Um, Corner also makes an interesting point about, okay, well, sure, there's biblical religious reasons to be against sodomy. Why sociopolitically was it taken so seriously? Kerner makes the argument that if you could uh, really crack down on sodomy, that exerted political control and governmental control right down into the bedroom and almost into people's heads because it's governing like their most basic impulse to have, right? And I think there's some truth to that too, right? Like, like, yeah, if you can, can, you can make somebody's compulsion illegal and they buy into that, oh, what I think is illegal, it makes them, it puts them right on the edge all the time and maybe makes them well, a little bit easier to control. Uh, it's so good that we've come so far We've we've really made it out of the dark ages, right, savagely, Brad. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, and this feeds into this feeds into why the Duke of Alba would have been so into it. This is a quote from Corner. This cosmic state of emergency, which we see in the central panel, sodomy, turning away from God, having sex with whatever butt passes by, right? <laughs> this cosmic state of emergency would have this is a quote from corner the cosmic this cosmic state of emergency would have fueled their urgency meaning king philip ii duke of alba their urgency to crush with emergency powers all those who might be their subjects so kerner states this is like a inflaming the passions to like turn you into like a tyrant of some kind is kind of is kind of his point. Now we gotta stop these butts. We gotta right? stop these people. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it is one of those things. There is like a, you know, you see this in like, well, men get, you know, certain kinds of men get, um, you know, like this is a weird turn to take, but this is art of darkness. So men who become like serial killers of prostitutes or whatever, right? Often what happens is they get refused and rejected over and over and over again. Their, their compulsion gets like, you know, slapped in the face and it makes them insane in a violent way, right? It's like, okay, sure. then I'm just going to kill every woman that I come across. Like, yeah, it, horrific. It, it, so it, you can see where you t- when you take those compulsions and you really screw with them, weird things can happen for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> So let's talk about a little bit about the tree man again, more from the corner interpretation, the, the, the fun little creature in the, the, the far right. Um, 
Bosch actually drew this a number of times in some of his extant drawings. We have the tree man. Uh, Kerner claims that Bosch uses this as a stand in for himself. Um, and that Bosch is, uh, common is putting him in there to kind of say i'm in this game too i'm in this cosmic game of desire that i'm fending off and fighting with myself this is where we get the idea from corner that this is uh this is about the enemy being the self about your own compulsions being the thing that makes you turn away from god and thereby turn towards nothingness right so this tree man with the broken egg this potentially is bosch looking back at us yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the kind of this is where this is where my compulsions could lead me. Now, does that mean he was a you know? There's some speculation that he might have been a homosexual. I, I think saying somebody didn't have a kid, so they had a homo, they were a homosexual is a is a stretch. <laughs> but but they always I mean, say that they say that about yeah. anybody in history who yeah anybody who didn't have a child. And it's like well, there's a lot of reasons speculation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there could be hell. You know, who knows? He might have lost a lost his testicles in a farm accident i don't know like um so anyway that's what that's what kerner says um but interestingly kerner doesn't say anything about the bagpipe and so it's like nobody gives you a full picture of this thing exactly um now let's talk about another couple of things uh one more thing maybe two more things from the kerner interpretation um one aspect of kerner's interpretation that i find unsatisfactory he talks about these five structures. There's also one structure in the Garden of Eden panel, but the five structures at the top of the central panel. Kerner basically says, oh, these are just um, oddities. Um, at the time, <laughs> elites liked to, to collect weird things. They would collect weird objects that looked somewhere between man-made and um, natural, which I agree these look somewhere between man-made and, man-made and natural. So Kerner just kind of dismisses that. That's that's really all it is. Is it's just interesting stuff that somebody might have liked to have in there. Yeah, just five things at the center of this incredible painting, full of detail. <laughs> right, that are just yeah. neat. They're yeah, they're I think just, they're, they're neat. neat. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the one part where I'm like, I don't know about that. That seems a little. That seems a little off. Um, now the question is, okay, if the Kerner interpretation is true, what is Bosch like as a person? Bosch is a fairly orthodox religious person. But I think if Kerner is right, what we're seeing is a document on the order of St. Augustine's Confessions. We're seeing like a person who is very orthodox in their religiosity, but also confronting their own tendencies and desires and wrestling with them and realizing that like it's, being a human being with free will is, you know, could very well end in doom, right? Like, and now that I know he is or as urbane as he was, yeah, it might make sense too, right? Because you've got this fellow who's living in a, a cosmopolitan way, right? Very connected. So he's walking down the street and he's like, I can see her naked. I can see her naked. I can <laughs> right. see her naked. And he's, he's wrestling with her. You're not supposed to. Yeah. So yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting interpretation. And, and then these, these men riding all of the animals, that could be him 
you know, describing his own feelings of wrestling with these passions that right, are going right. Against. And these passions mm-hmm. take me for a ride. I'm not controlling them. They're taking me for a ride. Right. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm caught up in it. It's I'm exciting. sure we have We're no idea what that's like, do we? I, right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I've, I've been in control every second of my life. Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we could do about that on the after dark. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Okay. All right. So, uh, so, one more thing, because this is uh, going to tie us into our next couple interpretations, which we aren't going to spend as much time on. Um, owls. Okay. There are owls everywhere in Bosch. Everywhere. Um, I think there are seven in the Garden of Earthly Delights. I could be wrong. There might be five. There's plenty of them. And they're everywhere in all of his other paintings. I don't know that there is a... a I don't know that there is a painting that we have the complete version of that is does not have an owl in it by Bosch. Okay. Now, Kerner claims that in medieval times, and I've corroborated this in other places, that owls were thought of as sinister. Um, there's a quote from somebody, I, I forgot to, I, I neglected to write down who wrote this, but it was from Bosch's time, who described owls as fatted on the excreta of their own ugliness. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's an interesting tidbit, though. Owls in Dutch apparently are called Boschvogel. Ah, Boschbirds. Bosch. Bosch yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. right. So, in this way, they can be some kind of like emblematic double for Bosch, right? Um, I just think that's really interesting. And I think they're so omnipresent and the name thing and, and all. I think the owls might be sort of a key to this, right? Mm. Kerner just says, ah, oh, they're just evil. They're sinister, which I, is, I don't even think that that's necessarily wrong. But let's look at what Frank, how Franger describes the owls because he has probably the most sophisticated take on them. Okay. <clears throat> um, this is Franger talking about owls and Bosch. This last example, which relates the owl to the choice between good and evil, leads into a, its symbolic deeper, uh, sorry, leads into its deeper symbolic significance. Because its eye can pierce the darkness, Uh, The owl stands for knowledge of hidden things and the power to see the invisible. It is one of those creatures which, as initiates and possessors of primeval knowledge, have been known from time immemorial, as Genesis says, knowing good and evil. The knowing knowing evil is knowing death, whose dusky fields the owl crisscrosses in its flight. But the knowing good is the wisdom of God, Sophia. The owl has known them both since the beginning of the world. It saw death as the three-headed ibis writhing at the feet of the youthful creator of mankind, whose age, according to Joachim of Flores, flourishes in wisdom. So the ultimate meaning of the owl is that its, its wisdom is grounded in the knowledge and transcendence of death. It is not clear from all this that a cultic function, I'm um, sorry, is it not clear from all this that a cultic function of the utmost importance determined the location of the focus of concentration at the dead center of the base of the fountain of life? where from the omnipresent, all-seeing, all-vivifying pupil of God's eye, the owl stares out at us. And that's what he's talking about, specifically location, is in the left panel, that crazy fountain in the middle, there's a hole in it with the owl. And that owl is dead center on the, yeah, on the left it. panel. I see yeah. it here now, yeah. Right. And then, of course, you have an egg in the middle, right? You have an owl, mm-hmm. you have an egg. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, now this is going to take us into another interpretation, this owl thing. Okay, I'm going to put away Franger for a, minute, a bit. Get out of here, Franger. Franger. 
Wilhelm Franger. Wilhelm. Oh, yeah, it's a very strong name. It is. I found, I looked up uh, Boschvogel, and there's a bistro, uh, I assume in the Netherlands, oh. called Bistro oh. Boschvogel. Yeah. Oh, really? Do they mm-hmm. eat owl there? I don't think they do. <laughs> it's in, oh, I'm not even going to, tw- let, let me try. Erti- yeah. Ertrikia. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Ertrikia. Yeah. Nordstrat. Yeah, boy. Oh, oh yeah. Boy. <laughs> These are hard, they're hard words. Yeah, yeah, these are tough. Yeah. yeah. Boschvogel. I like it. Yeah. Dutch words don't fit in my mouth. Indeed. They're weird. They're they're odd. They're hard for me. I mean, most yeah. other languages are, but Dutch in particular is strange for me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I'm reading now from a book by Linda Harris. And this book is called The Secret Heresy of Hieronymus Bosch. Okay, and we're talking about owls again. If Bosch was a Cathar, then the prince of the world would certainly have played an important part in his depictions of the earth. But does this actually happen? Bosch's earth is overrun by devils, but where is their leader, Satan? In fact, though Bosch only rarely depicts Jehovah and never paints Satan overtly, he frequently represents the evil deity in a symbolic form. As many art historians have noticed, there is one particular recurrent image which is present in nearly every picture that Bosch Bosch has produced. This omnipresent creature is the owl. The owl in the Middle Ages was usually thought of as either a symbol of the devil or an image of the Jews, who it it was believed valued darkness more than light. If the owl had wisdom, it was the wisdom of darkness, witches, and the occult. The owl was seen in in this way because it is a bird of night which hunts in the shadows. It watches its prey unseen, and its aim is to catch and ingest its unsuspecting victims. A bird associated with these images is a highly suitable symbol for the Cathar prince of the world who lurks in the realm of darkness, plotting to trap humanity here forever. Owls, man. Owls. Owls are very cool. I love owls. I mean, you know me. You and I are, you know, you're the owl man. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You've been on Kalmashik Houts. Yeah. And I've been collecting these little tchotchke owls for like years. Like I got 15 of them sitting right here. So I'm big into owls. Uh, Now, I think this I think this owl thing is part of the key to getting some kind of understanding. Now she mentions Linda Harris mentions Cathars. Kevin, do you I'm not trying to put you in the hot spot, but do you know what a Cathar is? The Cathar heresy. Yes. That's that's what I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know much more. I think are, were they the ones who were accused of kissing each other on the on the arse or was that the the Templars? Oh, they might have been that. Um, they accused a lot of these Gnostics from do, for doing that. <laughs> ah, but of course, yeah. that's, that's what they were. It was a Gnostic sect. Yeah, they're a Gnostic movement primarily between uh, the 12th and the 14th century, primarily in Southern Europe. They could trace its um, lineage back several hundred years to the Albigensians and the Bogomils. Uh, funnily enough, I discovered, you know the term bugger for a gay guy? That yeah, comes bugger. from the Bogomils. Oh. Like hundreds of years have passed, apparently. Mm. Yeah. You're a bugamil, you're a bugger. You know, eventually it's your bugger. Well, yeah. those, uh, those insults tend to stick, don't they? They do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's like, them. there's no bogamils left for hundreds of years, but you can still be a bugger. Mm. Um, in the early 1200s, the Cathars um, and, other, and other similar Gnostic sets, sects were uh, the target of a prolonged extirpation effort by the Catholic Church. Um, Part, part of this was called the Albigensian Crusade, which more or less wiped them out um, other than, you know, like in an underground movement. 
I don't want to get sidetracked into like a prolonged um, idea, uh, discussion of what the Cathars were and their history and that kind of thing. But, but the, 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 the focus of this book I just read from is that Bosch was a, was a crypto Cathar. Um, and she actually makes a pretty convincing case. Um, so uh, let's say, um, I want to be kind of generalizing here big time because it, the Cathars, a sector like this, it's not organized. It's, it's like the Adamites. It's not organized the way the Catholic Church does. There's not like a died, there's not a strict dogma. It's probably partially run by the, 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 the laity and not the clergy. Um, and so, you know, every Cathar might have had a slightly different opinion. Um, but let's summarize it this way. And any Cathars out there, please, you know, let, engage with me on Twitter and tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we love to hear from our Cathar fan. <laughs> That's right. Um, and also, so, <laughs> if you can induct us, bring us in. Hey, bring hey, us hey, in. I don't know, man. Uh, and the more I read about this Cathar, I might be a Cathar. I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, I think I'm an Adamite. Yeah. yeah okay, fair enough. Um, so in the Cathar faith, there is a God we're going to call him God. And there's an evil God. We're going to call him Satan. Um, they may, depending on what part of Catharism you're in, they're either of equal power and there's a, there's a higher God above the, the God above God, or there, you know, there's a good God who's the, is the God above God. And then there's the bad God who's the demiurge who created the realm that we live in. Right. Humans in this idea are actually angels that have been seduced by one means or another, and then trapped in this realm uh, as part of or ahead of a war, a war in heaven. Um, and you can match this with the broader Gnostic idea that we're trapped light in this realm and that our objective is to, to, supposed to be to, to, to reunite ourselves with the greater light, which is God, right? Um, Cathars believed that if you were not able to escape the lure of Satan, then you were doomed to reincarnate. So they believed we lived like in P.K. Dick's Black Iron Prison, and your job was to try and escape by right living and coming to terms with God. Not very doctrinal. Not in <laughs> line with the one true no. holy Catholic, Roman Catholic, apostolic church. No, you're, yes, you're correct there. Heresy. You're, you're, yeah, Burn this them. Is, this Burn is. the witches. <laughs> I don't even know if you're comfortable with this kind of talk, Kevin. I mean, maybe. <laughs> no, this, this is fascinating. The idea yeah. that there was, there was semi-major, I mean, I don't know how, how major they were, but fringe Christian movements yeah. where reincarnation was a, a fixture yeah. of the movement. Right. That's quite... It's right. It, yeah. And it, it, it definitely mm. throws you off, and not to mm -hmm. say it's right or anything, but it definitely, it, it tilts your idea of the history of the church a little bit. You're like, wait, what? Like, and the whole of Europe, were, really. Yeah. yeah. And there, yeah. there was a crusade. I mean, there was a crusade. There was a directed effort like, you know what? We got to wipe these people out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there were Cathar enclaves and like, you know, there, there were, there were, you know, this was a, this was a thing. I don't know numbers wise, but you know, you think about it in America, like what, uh, what's the percentage of say, Muslims in America, it's five percent yeah. or two percent, something uh, in that range. Yeah, you know? I, I don't be like, know. Uh, it'd be like if they decided uh, we got to wipe out Kanye fans. Right. <laughs> right. They're, right. They're becoming yeah. too powerful. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would. You could do it, but it wouldn't be that easy, right? There's no, a lot of them. It yeah. wouldn't be pleasant. Right. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so now I'm going to give you some reasons why this might be true. But first, we got we to gotta understand a couple of trickle-down effects that uh, Bosch being a Cathar, what he would have then believed, okay? Um, you would believe that this world is literally evil that we live in. Some Cathars... Yeah, some Cathars believed that matter was literally demon feces. Matter yeah. itself was demon feces. Yeah, right? again, yeah. I'm on board with that. <laughs> um, because of this, many Cathars and many other Gnostic sects believed that procreation was a sin, really. Because, hmm. uh, you know, what right do you have? You know, you're trapping light in an evil dimension. Like, that's not the way to go, right? Uh, you, you lost me here, but right. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. They would... Um, there's some other interesting kind of effects. They would only eat fish because at that time they believed fish came about because of spontaneous generation. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And many other foods inc- they believed encouraged sex. So You milk, know what would be amazing cheese, would be to egg. have a guy who was a real serious method actor yeah. uh, on like a, a, like a Christian Bale level method actor yeah. who... who you know, sort of creates a social media account where he pretends to be the last Cathar and he, and he goes on Rogan. <laughs> no, man, I only eat fish. Only fish. So, so what you're telling me is that you yeah. only have a, you have an only yeah. fish diet. Yeah. Because the fish, they spontaneously form. I don't know about Jamie, that. pull up that video of <laughs> salmon spawning. <laughs> Cathar's like, no, bro, I don't. White. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> The last Cathar on Rogan. That's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also, if you're a Cathar, you smelled really good because you believed that water was bad. And in particular, baptism was evil. So you're not bathing ever. And you kind of think about this. There is a way that this sort of makes sense. If you don't drink water, you die. And when you die, you come right back. It's like water is this way that material reality has its hooks in you, right? It's, it's, it's like what, what bonds you to the earth in a way. Um, but, you know, this is the question. I'm like, why aren't they all just killing themselves? Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's that argument, right? Where somebody's like, I'm a nihilist. All right, let me shoot you. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Like this, this realm is, I guess you would say that you're going to go, you just come right back. So killing yourself maybe sets back your progress or it something. It just burns too many calories or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. So it's, a, it's an odd religious sect. I think it's interesting, just as all, I think all of these things are interesting. But let's talk a little bit. I'm going to read a little bit from the, the uh, Linda Harris um, book, um, a little bit more about just Catharism. Um, <clears throat> no one can deny that the Cathars followed the ideals of the New Testament. So they, they pretty much just li- ended up lining up. I mean, they, 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 you know, they followed the Ten Commandments, you know, all of these things. They didn't have, they weren't like Adamites where they were having like, you know, naked, naked sermons or anything like that. Um, no one can deny that the Cathars followed the ideals of the New Testament and viewed the ordinary people of the world with sympathy and understanding. As they saw it, the souls of those, these people were spiritually alive and could be enlightened and saved. The problem was that not everyone fit into this category. Like the Manichaeans before them, the Cathars believed that certain souls had been committed colleagues of Satan from the start. NPCs. 
These souls were seen as spiritually dead and beyond all hope of salvation. The Cathars carried this idea so far that they believed some people were literally demons in human form. These demons were often the richest and most powerful members of society and the church, and the inquisitors were undoubtedly included among them. Ooh, that's going to make them real popular. Yeah, right. Yeah, you are a demon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why? Exactly. Because I say so. Right, right. And right. I stink. Right. <laughs> can't, right. Can't, <laughs> they're not hard to find. Oh, they wouldn't be hard to find. Yeah, you just sniff yeah. them out. Yeah. 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 It smells mm. like fish in your hut, Bosch. <laughs> yeah. Fish and B.O. Oh, man. We're going to take you in front of the tribunal. Indeed. Now, <laughs> now, the evidence for ongoing Catharism in Bosch's time and place is uh, scant at best. Um, but there are a handful of court proceedings um, leading into the 15th century, so it's not really impossible. And here's the best historical evidence for it, okay? Um, in the 1230s, so this is 200 years plus before, um, before Bosch, Conrad of Marburg had made an effort to stamp out Cathars in a kind of German inquisition, particularly in the Cologne, Bonn, and Trier area. Now, Bosch, as we said, his real name is uh, Geronimus or Jerome or Jeremiah Van Aken, suggesting his family was originally near um, from the town of Aiken, which is actually where the Cather heresy was quite prevalent. Now, 1230 was where this German Inquisition happened. The earliest documented arrival of a Van, uh, Van Aken in this town of Sertikenbosch uh, is in 1250. So the speculation ah. would be they got stamped out over here. We went to Den Bosch and tried to recreate our lives there. And, oh, we're just humble painters. And, you know, we don't know anything about Cathar heresy, right? We just paint the craziest paintings you've ever seen. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. With a now lot watch. of butts. Yeah, we're just normal folks. Now watch this. <laughs> yeah, Normal people paint butts <laughs> over here. Hundreds of them. I see butts <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Call it the hmm. devil's cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Oh yeah. And we take kind of rap names. We name ourselves after the town. We move right. from one town to the next. And now I'm, right. yeah, now I'm Hieronymus yeah. Bosch. Right, 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 yeah. right. And I have the emperor's ear if I want it. I can talk to my guy and he knows the emperor. And who am I? Yeah. Right. Wild. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. This is yeah. weird. Like, I don't think that this, I don't think. I think, and I said earlier on, I wanted to quadrangulate what, who Bosch was from this. I don't think any of these interpretations give the full picture. I think the Cathar and the Adamite ones are a little bit out there, are probably too far out there, but I don't think they're 100% wrong. Um, uh, okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of images here in the, in the Cathar thing, and I want to kind of keep moving. Um, first thing, you see all of the pink in this painting? There's pink uh, everywhere. Which, which painting are we talking oh, about? The now? Garden of Earthly Delights still. Yes, of course. There's pink mm -hmm. everywhere, right? Yes. According to Linda Harris, pink is symbolic of the material world. So it's a very sensual color, right? And you can see how it would represent the kinds of things that Satan is using to lure you and keep you in this world. I mean, it looks like genitals pink is the color of you know idealized genitals right um you know so all those women who love to wear pink they are 
demonic forces trying to lure you and trap of you. Of course, yeah. Brad, Brad, in the course of the episode, has become a Cathar. <laughs> this has been an yeah. initiation. Yeah, I believe and, it. And uh, <laughs> we prepare for some real craziness uh, during the, what, we, what it will now be the third hour as okay. we go into that. Yep, yep. All Classic right, Art of Darkness episode. Another, yes. we're not done. I declare <laughs> it a certified banger. <laughs> good, good. Well, we're we, getting there. I yeah. got boshed. <laughs> We're all going to be boshed by the end of this, man. Yeah, yeah, man. Okay, so um, another thing. Birds. There are birds friggin' everywhere in this. Now, some commenters have said the birds are bigger than the humans, so this suggests some kind of fairyland thing, which... I, I don't know. I don't know how much fairies were in Dutch culture, but maybe this is some kind of fairyland thing. I don't really know if there's enough evidence for that. But there are birds everywhere. Harris claims that in the medieval era, not only were owls sort of evil, but birds in general were thought of as having kind of sinister vibes. We've come full circle, of course, because now we know that birds are not real. Birds are not real, right? Exactly. Birds aren't so real. That's a, mm. that's a Cathar. That's a Cathar interpretation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um, I couldn't really nail down anything about this this birds being sinister thing because I kept finding alternative interpretations, and it sounds like you got to go specific bird to bird. So that's what I would think. I think it would be yeah. species by species. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think, think I, mm. I don't think you can say anything generally about. You know, birds and birds in general in the medieval era were evil. I think that's that's way that's too, way too broad of a way brush. too yeah indeed yeah yeah. Um, but you know, it is a good question. Why are there so many birds in this painting? <laughs> I think I think that's a fair question. Um, another thing I want to point out, and, and Linda Harris is the only uh, interpretation that does try to explain this, is there are all these round and varying sizes there's a lot of round shapes a lot of and she calls these angel seeds if you look in the central panel they're everywhere there and there are big ones and small ones um there are clumps of them in that body of water sort of near the dead can dance thing but up to the right there's a big blueberry that a bunch of people are eating off of yeah i see that yeah i see it And, and then there's ones all over below that there's a, a guy carrying an oyster with some people having sex inside of it probably and then below that there's a woman with two cherries on her head that you know that maybe that's testicles uh but you see these little circles these little spheres all over the place um linda harris claims these are representative of souls that are being sort of processed by material reality so the red ones are sort of inflamed with passions and this is like this is the evil god Satan is sort of, this is symbolic of Satan harvesting these souls and locking them into material reality. Um, the problem is when you, they go gray or black, that person is lost, according to Linda Harris. And now that, that represents a demon. Um, and you'll see them in the far right panel. There are gray ones. Uh, if you look around, there are gray and blackish ones all over the place. Hmm. So she's the only person who really makes any attempts to explain that. Um, the vortex of animals that we've talked about through our various interpretations, Harris um, says this is a powerful image of reincarnation, which indicates that if you're just driven by your carnal desires to procreate, you just keep coming back. Like you ne- you're never going to get out of this loop, right? Which that's possible. And it's a sort of an evil loop because it goes around to the left, right? Um, now, this is, we'll talk about, 
Harris's interpretation, the Cathar interpretation of the tree man, which I think um, Harris is, is, I don't think Harris has the best one. I mean, she basically says, this is again, this is Saint, this is Satan. Um, the egg there is broken because the old, the, the egg always breaks. Uh, you know, the, there, the big cavern in the buttocks with the tavern in it. It's a, it's a fairly, it's a fairly straightforward, um, interpretation of that being Satan. One thing I do want to point out though, um, it's hard to see cause it's the same color as the body of the tree man, but he's got a bandage on his leg. I don't know if you can make that out. Um, on his right, on, I guess it would be his right leg. There's a, there's a band, there's a wrapped bandage. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I had so, not noticed it. Yeah, but now that you pointed out, he has. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Harris claims that a, a wound on the leg is representative of like possession by evil in this time, which is a strange symbolic. I, I don't know if that's actually true or that's something that Linda Harris has kind of cobbled together, but maybe, I mean, I can't explain why that wound is there. It's kind of, it is kind of weird. Right. Um, yeah. It, to me, it just seems to reinforce if I'm just looking at what I'm seeing, it seems to yeah. reinforce the, the stuckness of the creature, the yeah, creature. It's, it's, fall, it's yeah. falling apart kind of to me. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I see. Yeah. And so I don't think you've got to go that far, but we're going to look briefly at another painting and see a similar thing and, 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 and speculate a little now. Here's the great thing about like a, a Franger or a Linda Harris interpretation I realized. The one good thing about having a wackadoo interpretation like this is because you're representative of a secretive cult, anything in there that's contradictory to your theory, you just say, well, Bosch had to hide some stuff. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? He had to be hiding. He can't right. just put it all out there, right? Mm. And it's like, well, that is true, thinks- but it's also... Yeah, yeah. They know where to find him. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just sniff, you sniff, give us give a sniff, put your nose <laughs> yeah. in the air. Mm. But it, it, so in some ways it's like, yeah, I guess if he was a Cathar, he would have to kind of go with the flow a little bit, but it, it's kind of overly convenient in some ways. Now, here's one thing. If he is a Cathar, Bosch should a couple of things. He should have some hatred for the hypocrisy of the church. Right, because to him, if he is a Cathar, right, we're putting ourselves in the mindset of Bosch as a Cathar. The church, the clergy, and all that—they're demons. Their interest is—they're in league with Satan, right, to keep you lured in material reality. Yikes! Right? Yeah, so that's interesting. So we should see something along those lines in uh, Bosch's work, right? Um, Kevin, I don't know, in that email, I sent uh, another painting, Adoration of the Magi. I think it's the first uh, attached painting. I will look it up. I will find it. One second. Okay. Yeah, so the Adoration of the Magi is actually another triptych, but we're just going to look at the central panel of it. Um, And Adoration of the Magi is a typical painting um, where, you know, many, many, many painters would do interpretations of it. It's the moment where you know, the newborn Christ is being um, brought in, is being, the, the three wise men are bringing gifts to him, right? And there's a thousand versions of, of, of the adoration of the Magi. Um, Harris looks at this particular painting fairly deeply and makes some interesting points about it. And I'm going to read just a little bit. <clears throat> um, 
the nativity scene in the central panel is so odd, eccentric, and disturbing that one wonders how uh, Seguinza could have accepted it as normal. That's Seguinza as a, as a previous uh, interpreter of, of Bosch. In fact, what its symbolism reveal, reveals is surely not traditional piety, but rabidly anti-conventional. In the foreground, Bosch has represented the Magi in front of the stable. The three kings pay homage to a Madonna and child who looks stiff and unreal. They have been compared by Gibson, another art historian, to cult statues rather than living figures. This concept is very unusual, but it is not heretical in itself. What is odd and completely unprecedented is Bosch's implied opinion of the Magi who worship the cult statues. These kings are not the positive figures which are depicted so often in traditional Christian art. Instead, they are shown to be sinful and unsound in some way by the demons and other images of evil that decorate their clothes and gifts. Now, it's hard to find a good enough resolution image to um, <clears throat> understand this whole, the, the uh, images of evil that are on their clothes and gifts, but there are some odd images. <clears throat> um, the, the, one of the gifts that the, the Christ child is given is uh, the sacrifice of Isaac in a small statuesque form, um, which maybe isn't that unusual, but it's squashing a frog or a reptile or something, which is strange. Um, and then there's just some odd things on their clothing that doesn't, that don't make a whole lot of sense, sort of demonic figures on their clothing. Um, now there's also, <clears throat> this might be hard to see too, but in the, in, within the hut, sort of within the, the, um, uh, there's no room at the inn, right? So the baby, the Christ child is born in the manger. In the manger, there's some people, which is strange. Why are there people in the manger? All of the, the, the wise men are out. So they'd, be in, they'd be in the barn. Yeah. In the barn. Yeah. In the barn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So but the, this... the, ma- the manger is the thing that the, that the animal eats from. Oh, right. Yeah, it's yeah, the actual yeah. trough with the hay yeah. trough, right? So yeah, they're in yeah, the barn. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah there's, but there's these other people in the barn. And one of them, Harris claims, the one that's kind of leering out, he's sort of half naked, his robe is falling out, he's wearing an unusual oh, headpiece. Yeah. Uh, Linda Harris says, that's a member of the clergy. Clergy. That's like a depraved member of the clergy that, mm. she's, that he's representing. And mm. he has, it's hard to see in, this, in any resolution, but he does have a wound on his leg again, which Harris says is a symbol of being possessed by like evil knowledge. So, Goodness. Hmm. What is that figure? You're I right. Don't know. I mean, and, it's and very the, strange. The Magi on the left has uh, some sort of like a almost looks like a like a dragon or something that it's yeah, holding. Right. And then his when you look at his garb, those look like thorns as much as as plants. Right. Yeah, very interesting. It's yeah. weird, right? And and, hmm. and yeah, so it's stra- it's strange stuff. And she points out a number of other things in this painting, and I'm gonna I'm gonna point out one of them. It's also gonna help me make another point because here's the thing you might we we said early on Bosch is a member of the brotherhood of the swan it's a prominent social circle confraternity directly related to saint john's cathedral um now Bosch is a member of this the easy thing to say is well then he must have been a devout catholic right i mean it's the only thing that makes sense he's a part of this thing i think you know people join social groups like that for all number of reasons. It might've been just a networking opportunity, right? It doesn't just because you're a member of a group doesn't mean you believe in the group, right? 
I think that's fair to say. Although if you join our Telegram (laughs) at artofdarkpod.com, you can find the link to the Telegram. You immediately uh, assume, uh, we we assume that everything that we say, you're totally on board. Right, that's right. If we become Cathars, you become Cathars. You become Cathars. You're riding with us, right. Afterwards, yeah, yeah. During post-production, you and I, Brad, have to decide, Cathar, Adamite. Right. Cathar, (laughs) Adamite. (laughs) Next party... Yeah, and we can't just wander from one to the next. You got to pick no, one and ride right. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're ride or die. <laughs> ride or die Adamite <laughs> party over here. I love it. I love it. Okay, so <clears throat> now I think this painting, Gift of the Adoration of the Magi, does at least imply some um, criticism of the church. Um, but what about criticism of the Brotherhood of the Swan? Okay. You can't see this in every version of the Adoration of the Magi. It's very, very small. But in many versions that I found, um, well, I found one version that didn't have it for some reason. It was very strange. But in, you might not even be able to see it unless you have a very high-resolution version. In the background, almost due left of the peak of the barn, there is a small building that has um, birds flying around it which apparently whorehouses were often called birdhouses at this time or something like that. Birds were often uh, slang for sex would usually use birds, often use bird slang apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, so it's clearly it's like a tavern and or whorehouse and from it is a flag with a swan on it. And the implication is by Linda Harris is that he was basically saying, look, the Brotherhood of the Swan is just, it's just a bunch of dudes hanging out, drinking. It's not, there's nothing religious about it, right? And I think that's pretty interesting. Now, there's another painting, and I'm not going to bring it up because there's only one thing I want to look at. But there's another uh, painting called the Marriage uh, Marriage at Kenai. I think I'm pronouncing that right, C-A-N-A. And this is a Bible story. This is where the Bible story where Jesus turned water into wine. I think we're all pretty familiar with that, right? Now, in that painting, there's a one very, there's several, but there's one very interesting detail in which sort of waiters are coming in, two of them. One has a platter with a boar head on it, and one has a platter with a swan on it. Okay, they're coming into this, they're coming into this wedding party, bringing this to the same wedding party where Jesus is eating. Now, Okay, the swan. Well, what's the big deal with the, bro- the Brotherhood of the Swan? They ate swan dinners. And what's the big deal with boar? You're going to eat a boar. Well, at this time, the boar was associated with the Pope. And the swan, fine, the Brotherhood of the Swan. The issue is they both have, um, what, uh, they both have moons on it. Um, what, do you, what do you call it when it's just a little bit of a moon? Crescent. Crescent, crescent thank you. I couldn't mm-hmm. find that yeah. word. Mm-hmm. They both no have crescent moon symbols on them which was a symbol of both the Ottomans and thereby Satan. So you have the marriage of Kenai painting where they're eating boar and swan, but it's Satan, Satan tainted. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know what to make of all this. This is the kinds of things that Linda Harris uses to try and convince us. Um, now that wouldn't mean that Bosch is a, a Cathar, those, those, boar and swan thing but i do think it suggests that he was had some real skepticism about the church um it's hard to understand what what that would mean if it wasn't skepticism of the church exactly um so i think she makes a good case not so much that 
maybe he was a Cathar, but that he had real deep issues with, with the church itself. Now, I'm kind of almost done with Linda Harris. One thing I do want to point out, she's the only one who makes a strong claim that Bosch actually left Denbos at some point and traveled to Venice, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Venice during Bosch's time is the only place in the world that could even conceivably be called a hotbed of Catharism, according to her research. Um, and she claims, and she claims there's evidence in some paintings and some drawings that he met Leonardo da Vinci, which temporally is possible because they were almost exact contemporaries, Bosch and Leonardo. Oh, interesting. Um, she claims that da Vinci's, and I do encourage people to look this drawing up. She claims that da Vinci's drawing allegory with wolf and eagle is clearly Bosch inspired. And I don't, I think she's got a reasonable argument there, actually. Um, it could be Bosch inspired. Um, my question is, he doesn't have any family. Why not just move to Venice? But, you know, if you're a Cathar and that's where the Cathar, well, I don't know. It seems, uh, it seems tenuous. Um, but that's, so that's another big interpretation. I mean, she wrote a whole book on it. It's well-referenced. It's actually fascinating for its history of Catharism um, alone um, and, and sort of what the thought, thought, you know, what the set of thoughts and ideas were. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, now, <clears throat> Uh, you know, the question then becomes, so did he do, if he was a Cathar, was he making this altarpiece for some kind of Cathar church? I, I guess that would be the, that would have to be what it's for, the Garden of Earthly Delights, that is. You know, are they able to commission that from him? And then how did, how did Count Henry III of Nassau get it from the Cathar church? And why wasn't that publicized in some way? And then why would you take a sacred object to this heretical cult and then it becomes a sacred object to you as well, right? It's very I feel strange. like we're in the realm of a secret society within well, a society, and exactly. it's all connected, and it's hard to know who belongs and right. running the show, and how much did Bosch know? And this, no, yeah. that's, that's you're hitting exactly where I'm coming at it. I think is right where you're at, Kevin. Where it's like it's not that he was an Adamite. It's not that he was a Cathar. It's not that he was any one of these specific things, but that there, whatever he was overlaps a little bit with all of these things in some way, sort of circumstantially. So he was, I do think he was part of maybe some unnamed in history group or thought process or whatever, something unusual. And this is going to take us to our last, and this one's quick. This is our last interpretation. This is the St. Anthony's fire ergotism theory. Okay. Ah, uh, ergot. Ergot. Yes. Yes. So, Cogato ergot sum. Uh, <laughs> it's not the same ergot, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I made a very nerdy joke. I like that. Um, uh, so 1984, this woman, Lorvinda Dixon, publishes an article called Bosch's, quote unquote, St. Anthony Triptych, um, an apothecary's apotheosis, in which she posits that at least the St. Anthony Triptych uh, it's a, it's, is probably his second best painting. I did email it to you, Kevin. You can pull it up. We're not going to talk very many specifics about it. Um, it is she claims it's heavily influenced by and centered on St. Anthony's fire, 
uh, symptoms and effects as well as its treatment and for the time, the spiritual dimensions. Um, we got to talk a little bit about what St. Anthony's fire is. Um, it's, we now know it's poisoning by a fungus, specifically a rye smut called ergot. Now, okay, what's the big deal? You basically got some kind of weird infection. Um, this is the same fungus from which Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD. This is the same fungus that um, is thought to be, by reputable sources, to have been the source of Kaikion in the Ellicinian Mysteries, right? For people, I mean, we're not going to go deep in the Ellicinian Mysteries, but yeah. Bosch be tripping. Bosch, exactly, exactly. That's the thing. Was he, did he have St. Anthony's fire and translate this into visionary experiences, right? Um, now, in, the t in his time, they didn't know what this thing was. It was assumed it was sort of like a demonic possession, basically, right? And it was assumed that it was called St. Anthony's Fire because, for people who don't know, St. Anthony is sort of famous for having this trial out in his cave in which he survived temptation by demons and, and onslaught by demons. And it's a, it's a painting that's it's a, it's a moment that's represented by many, many, many painters not only Bosch, but Michelangelo and a bunch of, my, my favorite one, one of my favorite ones is this one Michelangelo did when he was like 16, apparently, of the Temptations of St. Anthony. Um, so the thought is St. Anthony had this, it's called St. Anthony's Fire, and it was some kind of demonic possession. Um, now, how big of a deal was St. Anthony's Fire? Well, it wasn't as big a deal as, say, the Black Plague, um, but it caused, it has a, even now, like if, if you or I were to, to get accidentally dosed with ergot, there's a one in 10 chance that we would die, right? I don't like that. I don't no. like those odds. Not so you have to imagine in the Middle Ages, it was even worse, right? It had to have been two, three, four times that, right? So a very high number. Um, and it was fairly common. In 1418, there's a record uh, in Paris of 50,000 people dying in one month. Oof. And that was when Paris yeah. had a population less than 30,000. So in one month, one in six people died of ergot that, in Paris. That's no good. It's, I don't it's, like that. No, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty serious. God, we forget and, how, how difficult times were. How, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, and you had no idea what it was. I mean, it's demonic sure. possession. We don't like, we, nobody knows what to do. And it's a horrible, like, it's, you have muscle contortions, convulsions, agony. They call it St. Anthony's fire because you have agonizing, burning pain that nobody can do anything about. Oof. Um, and then you have hallucinations, right? Right. And well, I, the one symptom I missed, you, get, you will also often get gangrene and they have to cut parts of your body off. Ugh. Right. So horrific, horrific disease. Now, and you're French. And your friend, <laughs> and your cathar, you've never bathed. I mean, every, there's yeah. really nothing keep, good you're, happening. You're eating swan. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, terrible. Like, there's like two good things could possibly happen in your life. <laughs> um, now, it was a big enough deal um, that there were St. Anthony infirmaries set up specifically to treat ergotism uh, all across Northern Europe. Um, now, nobody knew what caused it. Uh, the one thing that they thought would work to cure it through divine intercession. Um, you take all of the various herbs, um, the most expensive and best versions of these herbs that had been known to work for some cases. Probably what it is, is 
you know, you give somebody something and they happen to survive. So you're like, oh, this one works, right? <laughs> That's what a lot of that stuff is. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So what they would do with this, this was the best, the best cure that people had. Um, they would pour wine infused with these herbs over the bones of St. Anthony. And then you would drink that wine. It was called the Holy Vintage. Oof. Yeah, that's right? pretty, it's pretty hardcore. That's pretty hardcore, right? And I mean, this was, it became such a thing that there's like, <clears throat> um, uh, archivists or whatever have compiled something like 60 complete skeletons of holy vintage bones. So like people were totally counterfeiting it, right? Flim flamming. Right. Oh, yeah, totally these are the bones. Yeah, yeah, this is a all right. bone. It's like a chicken bone. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, there were other cures, though. It wasn't just that. One of the big ones is, um, well, to, to understand the approach of the cures, you have to know what the, the Galenic method of, of health and medicine is. Kevin, you know anything about the Galenic method? Yeah. Gaul, Gaul French, right? I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, the idea was that you had hot, cold, wet, and dry. You had to balance these all oh, out. Oh, I totally dry. relate to that. I'm like yeah. that right now. I'm a yeah. little, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, dry. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right now. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So if you're, you're dry, you gotta, you gotta take something that's wet. If you're hot, you got to take something that's cold. You got to try to balance these things out. Ergotism was considered to be the hottest and driest of the diseases. So you need the coldest and wet, wettest of remedies. This included fish. This included mandrake root. Okay. These were the two biggest ones. Now, Kevin, if you pull up that St. Anthony's triptych, I think I might've told you not to bother, but I think it's yes, worth pulling up. I have an attached one that's kind of small. Okay. So if you look into the... Oh, yeah. There's uh, a fish in the middle. There's a fish in the middle. And then there's also, I believe it's the... Uh, trying to find exactly where it is. There's, there is a... Uh, I should have got a bigger one. Um, there is a woman on here who is a grandmother-looking figure whose head... And arms look like mandrake root and whose bottom looks like a fish. She has like a mermaid uh, bottom and she's sitting on a rat and she has a baby. And then next to her is some kind of thistle, thistle man. Thistle was also considered a cold, uh, a cold remedy. So I think this is pretty clearly Bosch putting in some kind of ergotism stuff in here, putting the, putting the cures for these things in there. Um, now, now, there's also, Lorinda Dixon goes into some pretty convincing stuff about um, alchemical, alchemical um, devices being shown in, in not only St. Anthony's, um, the Temptation of St. Anthony, but Garden of Earthly Delights, and that those weird structures were sort of interpretations of alchemical um, uh, devices sure. and things, which yeah, I, I think, is, that. I think mm -hmm. is somewhat convincing. Not, not being in, by any means an expert, well, an expert in any of this, but not an expert in alchemical devices. I think that's fairly convincing. So her point is, in particular, St. Anthony's, the St. Anthony triptych, but also maybe all of his work, that you would have this as an altarpiece in a St. Anthony's infirmary, and while you were trying to survive ergotism, this would be like a meditation piece. It was the spiritual dimension of it. Because you're trying to fight demons too, right? It's not, you're taking this stuff, but in your mind, you're fighting a demon to get this thing out of your body. And this would be an inspirational altarpiece to 
aid people who are trying to survive this. But the suggestion would be that the imagery Bosch was able to derive because he'd been afflicted by ergotism and gotten over it. And if it's, you know, it's one of the only ways to actually trip in the 1400s, I think there's a reasonable, there, I think there's a reasonable claim there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he was an artist of enough talent to be able to bring, bring back the experience of the, of the trip. So right. you would say that then this, this painting would have come before the Garden of Earthly Delights. I think it does. And I think that is, I believe that's how Ludwig Baldass, which literally is the name of one of the earliest people to do a biography of Bosch. Lud, Ludwig Baldass. Yeah, that's how it's spelled. B a l d a s s. He would. He said a that perfect, the perfect Bosch scholar. Exactly. He, he was. He was. He was it. made for this. Right. He got in front of the Garden of Earthly Nights, and he said, "Finally, it's my, it's my calling. Look at all these bald asses. I'm ready to go. I know what I'm getting my PhD in." right yeah it's a pretty good aptonym for sure that's hilarious <laughs> i just see him looking at yes yes bald asses yes yes <laughs> i don't know why but i'm drawn to this painting <laughs> i feel right at home i've been wandering the wilderness yeah yeah, yeah, yeah what do yeah. you think dr enormous bird <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Yeah, I know what I'm writing about for the next 30 years. Yeah. yeah. So I attached one painting uh, uh, that's not a Bosch to sort of drive this point home because I do think there's something to this ergotism interpretation. And this is a, an ayahuasca painting uh, based on the, just for you, Kevin, to see it sort of like that's what people who've undergone ayahuasca will paint. Mm. And then you see eh, there's something Boschian about that, right? You mm. can see how this might have been might have been turned into a, you know, this is a man who survived possession by a demon and is now bringing back the spiritual lessons that he's learned to, to, mm. to aid other people through the process. Mm -hmm. um, who knows? Um, now, there are other Bosch interpretations. Uh, I'm not going into them because that seems like enough for us to wrestle with. And I think those are the four or five most convincing. Um, what do you think of Bosch now, Kevin? <laughs> I, I feel like I know less than I did when we began, because when we began, I knew <laughs> next to nothing. And now I have so many questions. Right. Uh, I really did not. I guess if you had pressed me, I might have thought, mm, maybe we're, we might abut, no, no pun intended, <laughs> might abut some, uh, some, secret society business, but I didn't, mm -hmm. didn't quite, it didn't quite dawn on me. Uh, I knew that the, the garden of earthly, earthly delights was this standout freak painting in, yeah. in history. Yeah. Uh, and I recall I, I, we were in Brussels once and I do recall, I think we saw a number of Bosch paintings, although they have in Brussels. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot, like some of the major ones are in the Prado. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it just reminds me how, uh, how fascinating and interesting this late medieval, early modern period is and how much closer to these folks we are 
than our mediocre educations would have us believe right. because there's this, this um, artificial rift that's created this idea that the enlightenment and then there's everything before and that those are the dark ages. Yeah. It's and just then, a bunch of, it's just a bunch of dirty fuzzy peasants and they were there. crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, Whoa, no, Whoa, Whoa, slow down. There's yeah. way more going on. Uh, obviously a great talent. I really mm-hmm. appreciated the point that you made just on sort of just dissecting the various, uh, pieces that he would have pulled from in order to paint mm-hmm. to, 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 to conceive of and then draw the garden of earthly delights. I had never, yeah. that's a painting that you probably should pause over for an hour mm-hmm. and ponder. And so I saw a bunch of new things in there, little palette things. Um, there's that, that golden kind of ruddy russet kind of orangish thing that goes from the left to the middle to the right in hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all connected and there's way more stuff going on. Uh, yeah, yeah there's see- one. Let me point out one thing that I meant to point out. Okay. In yeah. the Garden of Earthly Delights, the background, the skyline of all three panels is consistent. Right. Okay. And now I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but hell is supposed to be like a different physical place that you go to. Right. Mm. So there is something like he's saying, this is all in the same plane. This is all in the same Mm. world. It's all a state of mind, baby. It's it's exactly. I think that's pretty all a state of mind. Yeah. Well, what year did he die, Brad? 1516. 1516. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say for the final time on the core episode, the main episode, mm-hmm. I just got boshed. You did get boshed. My butt, Bosh. my butt, got, my butt got boshed, man. <laughs> well, yeah. we, we have to, can I ask you? I want to ask sure. you the, the, the classic Art of Darkness closing question mm. before we go on and do the Patreon only after dark episode we're going we're going to talk about bosh and the nazis yeah. uh at uh patreon.com slash art of dark pod please do support the show we put a lot of effort into these episodes we buy an awful lot of books i'm we prepping do. for yeah. the Arto episode uh these are books that you know you can, i'm not getting at the local library here so if nothing else you know oh dude what yeah. i went through to get a reasonable price on this franger i'll tell you yeah man. <laughs> yeah, so if you, yeah, exactly. Wow, you got frangered. Yeah, frangered uh, <laughs> in the Bosch. <laughs> yeah, but if you value what we're doing, if you, you know, and if nothing else, like go and leave us five stars on iTunes, Spotify. Yeah, that's super helpful. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. We, and we really earnestly do enjoy hearing from people who listen to the show. We love feedback. And I mean, it always makes my day when somebody randomly says, hey, he comes to me on Twitter and says, hey, that Brad Kelly guy, total hack. But you, <laughs> Kevin, your episodes really well, I'll tell you, out. Kevin, I get a surprising mm. number of comments exactly like that. So Yeah, mm. very interesting. Mm. But <laughs> let's, let, let's close with the, the, the closing question, which is, Brad, what do you think Hieronymus Swan Eater Bosch would be yeah. doing yeah. now if he was yeah. alive today? I think... I think... I think you have to consider what we what I understand about his psychology from doing this. And I'm not saying I understand a lot about it, but the, the little that I feel like I may understand about how his mind works. He's he is drawing from a great number of sources. And I think whatever you settle on for being his sort of religious outlook, it's con it's complicated. No matter you think he's a Cathar or a 
an Adamite or just a Catholic, even if he's just a Catholic, it's sophisticated and complicated. And he know he understands a lot and he's excellent at representing things symbolically and understanding them. So I think he would be in the visual arts, but I think he would be seeing some kind of dramatic innovation in how, in how, disparate sources are pulled together. I mean, maybe he'd be working in something like multimedia and video or something like that, but I think he would be seeing a dramatically schizophrenic um, repackaging of things that you didn't think went together. And I think it would be pretty impressive. Yeah. And I'm not making a joke here. He, I could see him making a crazy NFT set yeah. That would that would do all <laughs> yeah. sorts of crazy yeah. stuff, and then yeah. interact with a game right. uh, or something. Yeah, I, I have a yeah. feeling he'd be he'd be there for let sure. Let me leave you. Let me end it mm. with the one quote we have from him himself. We have one piece of writing. Um, let me just find it, and it's well, on well, a. Dra- oh, go mm, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, after you. Um, it's on a drawing called "The Trees Have Ears That Field Eyes," and it's just a note he wrote. Most miserable, and it's translated into English, obviously. Most miserable is the mind that uses always invented things, always imitating, never inventing anything itself. So he had, he wanted to make things new. He was like a modernist in a way, which I find pretty interesting. I was going to say he seems like a very early modern, mm-hmm. which connects him to us through, through time. Yeah. Brad, excellent job. I cannot Thanks, wait man. to hear about uh, Bosch and the Nazis yeah. and whatever heresy we land on, whatever uh, doctrinal sins we commit, we're going to do it together <laughs> That's at right. artofdarkpod.com. Booyah. You got boshed. <laughs> Hang on here. I'm just going to go... Uh, I'm just going to go look at the Garden of Earthly Delights for four hours. Sounds <laughs> <That's> fun. <laughs>